course, need my music. Hey, we just got an Aries sub. What is that? Oh, it just means that Aries subscribed to my Twitch channel. I see. Yeah. We're, we're, we're racking them in. Oh, no, I didn't even set up my lighting yet. I'm so befuddled. Um, turn up the brightness. We need some blue. It's much better. Um, all right, Ray, how is it looking on your end? Are you able to see Twitch yet? Yes, so I can see you on Twitch yep. in a blank screen. Is that yeah. what I should be seeing? That is what you should be seeing. Um, and I will boot up uh, Flight Sim, of course. And it will be a little more interesting looking. Hello, Ari. Hello, Presser. Salve te omnes. What does that mean? Is it hi to all? Hi to all. Solve it. Hello, everyone. Ray, do you speak any Latin or anything like that? No, but I speak English, which has a lot of <laughs> Latin in it. So. Oh, right. <laughs> I speak a little English myself. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's a pretty good language, all told. <laughs> yep. Convenient that that everyone kind of has to speak it. I mean, mostly. Yeah, it is pretty nice. Uh, I haven't really had to like every time I learn another language, I forget it. Uh, English isn't even my first language, but it is the only language I speak now. Oh yeah. Um, what was your first language? I, I did listen to your um, uh, your thing with Critter. Uh, so some. Southeast Asian language. Uh, actually, it wasn't. It was uh, Portuguese because my parents were in Brazil at the time. Uh huh. But my, I guess my parents' native languages are, are Indian languages, as well, or a pigeon between Indian languages and Southeast Asian languages. Oh yeah. Um. You were in Portugal. Uh, I was in Brazil as oh, a. Oh, right. Yeah, before five years old. I have sometimes offended Portuguese people. I see. Uh, <laughs> I'll have to figure out how to do that and catch up to you. Well, uh, I'm going to tell you the secret. This is fucked up. The secret to offending Portuguese people is to confuse them with Spanish-speaking, you know, Spanish people or Mexican people or like something like that. I think I've been I have received offense at least one time, at least a few times. I will remember <laughs> to treat them as if they're speaking Spanish at all times. Oh my god. That's right, Gary. Um, Alright, cool. Well, we're, we're just booting up. Um, how's your day going? Pretty well. I have some like tightness in my left elbow and my neck, so I've been working on that, which is always nice to uh, slowly release tension throughout the day. Yeah, 
I, I am huge into that stuff. I'm, I do a lot of weird body things to manage tension. Um, is that like a meditative, like, are you more of a stretching sort of mechanical uh, manipulation of the tissue type of approach or, or, or meditation or something else? So now it's definitely a combination of both. Uh, yeah. I usually, yeah, do, do both at the same time, but sometimes I do one or the other. Just sounds like the right thing to me. I'm... What are you saying, Ari? It's sunny out today? What does that mean? Oh, you mean, what, in my room? There we go. Okay, cool. So, where do you want to fly today? Let's fly from Innsbruck Airport. Okay. Innsbruck. Is that Switzerland? No, Austria. Yeah. Innsbruck Airport. Let and is it possible to go to Uganda from there at all? Uh, that sounds that too far? like quite a hike. Well, we can take a look. So, hold on. Let me figure out the uh -huh. airport code. So, ICAO is L-O-W-I. Hell yeah! That's what I'm talking about! What's up, Henry? Welcome. Alright, L-O-W-I. And go to Uganda. Let me look up a Ugandan airport code. I'm, I'm expecting it's going to be... Well, I guess Africa's not that far away. EBB. H-U-E-N and Tebe International. So in our fighter jet, that would take 12 hours. I see. Um, well, then I guess I see these two airports on the in West Africa. Okay. Is that correct? Did I see that on, uh, on your screen? I or think, was that some other location? I think all these dots are technically locations I can select. So we, we can go like anywhere. Even oh, a cool. non-airport. Um, nice. So... Yeah, West Africa. Feel free to Google yeah. one. Uh-huh. Um. I mean, like... I mean, Gibraltar's like four hours. Uh, Carthage. It's two and a half. That's pretty chill. Yeah, let's go to... Let's go to Carthage. Go to Carthage. That sounds appropriate. Oh, yeah. Um, well, let's pick a plane as well. So here are the options. Um, we have available uh, fighter jet, which is... They have different stats, but the fighter jet is, you know, fast, high altitude, etc. We have some big, sexy planes, you know, like Airbus, Boeing 747, also super fast, high altitude. Then there's a lot of... There's a couple, like... I don't know a better way to explain it than like rich person jets, you know, like they're like jets yep. that are kind of functional, um, mm -hmm. but a little bit slower, a little bit less altitude. And then there's a lot of weird little cute, strange, janky planes, propeller planes. Um, these weird, this Icon A5 is extremely strange. They also fly very low and, uh, but they're cool and they're slow, but they're cool. Does anything appeal? Yeah, I think I saw a Cub Crafter, which I believe are manufactured like three hours away from me or something. Uh, I'm looking. 
Uh, oh, yeah, Cub Crafter. Cool. Let's pick it. Um, what color do you prefer? We got, looks like black and white, yellow and white, and pure white. Yellow and white sounds excellent. I don't know if we're gonna make it all the way to Carthage because this is a slow plane, but let's let's yeah. take a crack at it. We'll go south. Excellent. Um, I just got back to going to the gym like for real. I've, I've had like a home gym, but well, it's only like dumbbells. Um, I don't know how was how was COVID for you as far as like staying fit because i know you, you mentioned me you're, you're getting back to the gym later today yeah so actually I, I caught cold symptoms and because it's an mma slash grappling gym uh i'm not actually going to the gym later today after all i just figured yeah. that since you scheduled it for this time already yeah 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 oh, that's, okay. that's cool uh but yeah i was thankfully able to train in a small group of about five starting in april yeah. Um, like pretty consistently, unlike everyone else, which was something I was really grateful for. And in fact, I think I improved a lot more because we were training in small groups. Uh, what kind of training? Grappling. Oh, sweet. Is it specifically like BJJ? Uh, yes. So it's, it's specifically BJJ, but naturally because of, of competition over time, uh, all these sports have incorporated parts of other sports into right. them so even though it's bjj there's definitely wrestling and judo in there right and so on all right well here we are here we are in our plane i don't know if i've flown this one before it looks cool actually um sweet all right so i don't know if, if you know anything about this game it's actually pretty impressive um it's got like uh, basically, we're on the, the real world maps, well, Bing Bing maps, mm -hmm. right? Um, hilariously, some people have modded it to use Google Maps because I think Google Maps is like better. Um, uh -huh. And uh, but you know, we we can flip all these switches in the plane. I don't know what any of them do, but like people who are super like plane people um, sometimes train with with flight sim. Um, though I, I have been told, I'm going to start trying to get this thing off the ground. I have been told that there's an even more advanced one that is like used by the military called DHS or something. I always forget the name. Yeah, I think I've heard of it as well. Um, is it? Uh, I don't remember, but I do remember that there's like two or three stock planes with that, but then there's a whole bunch of them that, that come from modders. Uh-huh. Well, they, they're, they sell... Um, Lithros knows all about this. Alright, well, we got some mm -hmm. air already. I like this plane. This is a cool-looking plane. Um... They sell... It's all expensive. It's like you can get another mm -hmm. plane for like 40 bucks, you know, every time or something. Um, yeah, as is the case with, with a lot of awesome sims I've, I've found. <laughs> it's a whole hobby by itself. Oh, yeah, and people get... Um, I'm going to get Lithros on here one of these days because I think he has like a pretty sick, like, flying gear, you know, like gaming version of like a simulator thing that he uses. Um, I don't know... I mean, like, you know, like a joystick and kind of stuff. Yeah, let's get a little air. I gotta screw up these flaps. Nice. South. Um, 
Yeah, so I so I wanted to have you on for a few different reasons. And one of them is that I think we probably can connect on a few different topics. Um, so, for example, I used to be super into martial arts. It was a big part of growing up. Um, and I think, like, probably if any one thing is responsible for me, like, getting through adolescence and not, I don't know, I don't even know what would have happened. <laughs> but but um, I think it is martial arts. I get super into karate and did that for a bunch of years. At one point, I was going, like, five or six days a week. Um, and I tried a million different other things. Later on, I did some boxing. I did some... I did a little bit of BJJ, though overall I kind of suck at it. Um, and tried a million other, you know, I tried fencing, I tried, I, uh, what else? Like, I basically tried to do, do them all, you know what I mean? Like, at least for like a couple sessions at different places and stuff. So that's been influential for me. Okay, I need to get more altitude. <laughs> um, and so when I hear you talk, you know, I'm just going to go around this mountain. There's no reason to pretend that this is a fighter jet. Um, so when I hear you talk about, like, combat sports and martial arts and stuff, I'm like, pretty interested in it. And I think you know uh, Prince Vogelfrey. Is that right? Yes, yeah. yeah he so, visited us a couple months ago. Oh, cool. Almost, yeah. So he and I have also talked a bunch about this this kind of stuff. And, and so I... I pretty curious to hear some of your like thoughts on it or like what what that is for you or how it's meaningful for you or what role it plays in your life or you know what why do grappling instead of i don't know basketball or whatever like i uh i only just really started pursuing martial arts in a serious way uh visit most of what you see is my notes to myself whenever i talk talk yeah. about it uh, though I think the desire has always strongly been there in elementary school. You know, I would wrestle with the with the other boys. Yeah. Uh, we would we weren't allowed to, but we would definitely find find the time, find a place, um, and play in that way. And by the time I got to high school, we were using sticks in in, in people's backyards and whacking uh -huh. each other with those. Right. Yeah. Um, so that kind of thing has always been there, and I was drawn to the military from a fairly young age. And while I was there, there were a lot of things about the training that kind of stuck in my throat, where I didn't quite understand why we were doing what we were doing, yeah. what the purpose of it was. There was a lot of bureaucracy and so on, uh, but it did teach me like the importance of trust and and how vital that is to just doing almost anything as a group in life yeah and when i left i was just still processing a lot of that to include like the 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 nature of small unit tactics and so on and and how that transfers over to life and realizing that it transfers pretty pretty well for me and then realizing that I really wanted to do that and that that's something that makes me fulfilled and happy. Uh, but then I realized there was no way for me to test all those things as easily um, out in the civilian world mm. because I can't just like 
I mean, I can, and I have tried to, to just get like 10 of my buddies out and just, you know, clear rooms and stuff. Uh, but it's, it's not the same level of, of dedication that you can find, mm -hmm. um, in people who are actively pursuing a martial art. And so doing individual combat sports is a way for me to test basically my entire belief system continuously. It's like a, it's like almost like the perfect lab situation for, for the way I view the world. Because then if I have a hypothesis about social interaction or, or faith or trust or any of that, I can go test it immediately on the mat and and see if it works so tell me more about that so i'm i'm, I'm gonna try to so i'm gonna try to play the role a little bit of like i'm gonna try to ask the like a couple of the like obvious questions i guess it's like well i i find myself torn okay what's my actual personal reaction to that yeah what does it mean what does that mean to um employ an idea on the mat what what ideas can you employ on the mat can you employ any concept in, in that way that you're talking about or tested in that way or it's it sort of violates uh intuition right so i obviously believe it's possible um mm. and the reason why i'd say it's possible is because we tend to generalize from looking at one thing whatever it is and that actually does tend to work over time Mm. And for most people, I would guess that there is something that they're using as a central metaphor uh, or one of the central metaphors with how they interact with the world. And that's going to be different for different people. However, I think fighting is like a very like fundamental one. Uh, another mm. one where you can do this, and I think you can actually do all the same things, is, is in sex. Mm. Uh, However, I don't know about you, but I don't, I cannot, it's not that I cannot, it's a lot easier to fight every day than it is to have sex every day. Hmm. Uh, and I'm not sure why that is, but that does seem to be uh, the case for me. And then also, why not do both? So you get both angles, um, and it just so happens that at this moment I'm concentrating on fighting as a metaphor right um let's tr so what are we let's how do we get into this um how do i ask the question i want to ask um it's a little hard because it's like what's in give me an example is there is there is that a way to Ask yeah, I can go with a with a relatively simple one. Yeah. And that is, you know, people might make a claim like defense costs less energy than attack. And this is simple because it's already about conflict. However, it's about conflict across pretty much every medium, mm. uh, right? So you might see this principle in StarCraft uh, as well as in, in chess. Um, or, you know, if you're... Um, playing some sort of improv game with some friends, uh, that there would be something about the act of defense, of stopping someone from disrupting your rhythm mm. that costs less energy than going out and disrupting someone's rhythm on purpose. Mm. So 
That is a, a fairly simple one, but w with a lot of these statements and principles and so on, uh, when I find them, it's one thing for me to begin to get it on an intellectual level, and it's another to, to feel it. And right. I've found personally that sometimes it, it takes years of, of feeling it before I really feel it. Yeah, yeah. Th that's interesting. So I do have a connection there where uh, I wrote a blog post about... Um... It's called uh, History's Boring Because You Don't Want to Feel It. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I sort of in a talk about my experience of trying to... So it's like, okay, you're reading about like World War One, right? And sometimes you'll read something and like you'll have an emotional reaction. And that sort of seems like it makes sense. And sometimes you'll read something and you will have no emotional reaction. Um, despite the reality of the thing being, you know, if you were there, for example, or saw it more richly... You would totally think this is the worst shit I've ever heard of, or you, you know, totally traumatizing, or sad, or you know, it's, at least if we're talking about World War One or, or something else, right? Um, and so I definitely resonate this with the sort of like, is there sort of like a process of making it real for yourself? Yes. So uh, I consume history <laughs> voraciously. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, most most social sciences. So. Whenever I encounter something there, I do want to feel it. And this is like, I've, I have not found anything in any of those contexts, whether that's in anthropology or history or psychology, that does not find a way to come out in one-on-one in -on -one simulation of combat. Hmm. And wh wh why does this process feel fruitful for you? I think... Something about it makes it easier for me to learn. Um, I've had trouble learning from other people for most of my life. Mm. Uh, that's that's why I, I guess I have a, a sort of weird relationship to school. Uh, but learning in this way is somehow much more natural feeling to me. Yeah. Like the the... The feedback loop seems much more tighter than many other places I can learn from. Okay, and so then to bring in the sort of squad thing, um, are, am I right that you're running some kind of project in that area? Yes, yeah. So hopefully I'll finally put it up this uh, week. Yeah. But uh, the, the basic idea is to teach... Uh, comfort with uncertainty through learning squad-based combat. Tell me more. I'm interested. So, uh, a lot of people in the space that I'm in, in the culture that I'm in, that I've noticed, especially after COVID and so on, seem to be, like, really afraid. Mm. And fear is good. However, I think sometimes the fear gets placed pretty high up on the hierarchy of, of decision-making. And there's this illusion of control that's pretty much ubiquitous. Uh, and the more educated you are, the stronger this illusion of control seems to, mm. to be. Mm -hmm. um, and a thing that I've found that tends to kind of crush that <laughs> is some form of uh, conflict, uh, direct conflict. And 
working in a small team really shows the I think the importance of like alignment and trust and how you really don't have control over your fate except through trusting the people around you. Yeah. Um, and in a way, like combat sports does the same thing. It's, it's just you and yourself. Like if you are in conflict with yourself, a lot of times, not always, I think there are conflicted people such as um, GSP or Mike Tyson that, that managed to make that work. But uh, for the most part, if you are in conflict with yourself, your opponent will use it against you. Who's GSP? Uh, George St. Pierre. Who was, um, I'd say, one of one of the the most respected MMA fighters of the last twenty years? Oh, cool! All right. Um, I, I've been listening to um, Beowulf on audiobook, um, and uh, it's a great audiobook. And the last time I listened to it was for Reddit, I guess it was probably eighth grade. So it's good to come back. And uh, I was noting today. Um, that a lot of it does seem to be this sort of um, there's the story right, and then there's this thematic return to um, a, bu a bunch of different cultural concepts about like how to be a good king and you know things like that. But also um, the idea of fate gets talked about a lot, and the inevitability of death, right, um, as well as things like the justice of of God and you know, it, it's sort of interwoven with, like, the, the combat and stuff. It's like, you know, Beowulf swipes at Grendel's mother and his sword breaks, but he doesn't lose heart, you know, because, you know, the thought of life, you know, his life doesn't even enter his mind. It's, there's sort of this sort of, like, exposition of martial virtue. Um, that's interesting. So that's kind of I'm connecting that to what you're saying uh, about, like... I guess it's anxiety and fear. Is like a theme that you're that you're that you're thinking about in terms of modern people's psychology and that you might be able to help people out of through your program? Yes, or that if people see something like this that they might be inspired to try something uh, similar on their own and that that would help them yeah. uh, interesting it sounds fun oh yeah it's it is definitely a lot of fun i think uh, people don't realize like how fast firefights are uh -huh. <laughs> in most cases um and and how time plays tricks on you when mm. you have someone tr actively trying to stop you that that what i found interesting to me is that you know we use nerf guns because it's like the the cheapest um most available thing mm. and nerf guns are these are like souped up nerf guns like meant for adults uh -huh. but they they they're still nerf guns you know they don't like hurt you or anything but people still like have the fear reaction and the 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 act of taking it personally when you get hit Right. right or when someone someone hits you all that is still there it's all still simulated and and that moment to me is like some of the most interesting times uh and it's also doubly interesting is that because of this then you get all the stress uh -huh. which is even more important to me to me for that to happen because that's the part that we want to to work with to learn how to work with 
uh, because uh, the fear and anxiety is always going to be there, and it's just a question of um, whether you can be comfortable with it or not. And so, what what's the? I, I mean, I'm curious to know more about sort of like the format of the program, if that's something you that's that's put together, you know, ready to talk about or anything. I'd be kind of curious, like, is it is it like sleepaway camp? Is it like you come and visit for a weekend, or what? What are you thinking? Uh, so I think in an ideal situation, it would be, um, like I would set up something like a gym, right? Like a martial arts gym. Uh, we'd set up a shoot house, uh, with mats and so on, so that you can transition between unarmed combat, um, combat with, uh, weapons like knives and so on, machetes yeah, and something involving simulating guns and, and even mortars. Um, but that's like, you know, something I need like... Uh, probably at least $200,000 for. So at the moment, we kind of, whenever I find people who are free, mm. um, I get them together, and then we're basically still reacting to this one day where we had a defending team and an attacking team, and we were we framed it like a raid. And so we had like 10 hours, and in this 10-hour frame, they could attack us at any time so that you have some of that uncertainty in there about like when this exercise is happening and when it's not. And then we took video mm. of, the, of the entire raid and noted all our mistakes. You know, that the number one easy mistake that people make is flagging your, your teammates, uh, pointing the weapon at your teammates. Hmm. Um, and friendly fire is actually a huge thing in, right. in real conflict um, as well as in this. And that's partly what we're trying to train around. So, after noting where we were, uh, we've been spending the time since then focusing on the little things, like how you walk uh, across a doorway, um, how you keep your uh, rifles angled, and so on. Where you put, you know, where you point your head, how you communicate in right. that situation. I, I have a million thoughts. Um, uh, one of them is let me just make sure that I don't forget. So I've got the one about one thought about Eric Prince that I want to ask you, and the other one is oh yeah the the the, the content creator brain is is clicking now, and I'm like, dude, you got to stream this shit. <laughs> you got to put it online. Like you got that would be so sick. Like uh, we actually Henry per, uh, person has a, a little uh, Twitch um, bot that for watching multiple streams simultaneously. Um, so. People will be like gaming, uh, you know, multiplayer, and then you can sync up the videos using this this tool or whatever. Um, anyway, sorry, no, that, that was con content brain. I don't know if you have a reaction to that. Oh yeah, so th that that would that would be the dream. Um, you know, like how how would we fund all of this? My guess, my idea would be that you you, you stream it. You, you let people see people learning in front of them like this because none of us are, are experts. Um, you know, I was I was a medic in the artillery. The only other ex-military guy was a artillery officer in the Ukrainian reserves. So we, we don't actually have that much experience. They, you know, they they put you for training something like this, for me at least, was, was three days. It was just three days. Yeah. Um, We're and trying, trying to bootstrap. I mean, in theory... I mean, in, from a business perspective, in theory, you can start bringing in instructors and shit, right? It's... Yes, yeah. And for our crowdfunding campaign, that was that was a goal. It's like, you know, once we hit 15000 or whatever, we would bring in instructors. Right. And I know a lot of guys who would probably do it for a lot less. But Right. Well, which brings me to the second thought. So um, 
did you ever read i mean you i'm sure you've researched i have no doubt in my mind that you have researched eric prince um and uh but but did you ever happen to read i think his book is like citizen soldier or something like that are you talking about uh that guy who formed blackwater yes uh unfortunately i did not read his book so this is it called citizen it's not citizen that's a musical group citizen eric Prince, citizen. What's this fucking book Welcome called? To this Civilian podcast. Warriors: The Inside Story of Blackwater and the Unsung Heroes of the War on Terror. I'm gonna, I'm gonna strongly recommend it, just because it goes through the play-by-play of how he initially started Blackwater by like basically buying a ranch um, and setting up uh, shooting ranges. And, like, with his, you know, SEAL buddies or whatever it was, um, as instructors, etc. And how this went to, like, consulting for the police uh, in whatever state or whatever it was to, to eventually then, like, the war on terror happen and they got all these crazy contracts. But it's just very cool from a, mechan- you know, play-by-play on how that got put together and how it started, which I didn't know, as, like, a shooting range. Yeah, so I'm taking from that playbook partially though i i'm hoping for something way more bottom up yeah uh, in the long term that you see this and and just like mma has become so huge uh because you know of, of people paying attention to it essentially um and starting gyms in their own like garages and stuff like even even here with us we've we've got some mats in the garage uh-huh. um and so we introduce people to it who, you know, aren't as into it to, to pay $100 a month or whatever, but you can just show up here anytime and I will train with you. Um, so I kind of want to bring that to the world so that people kind of realize that they have a lot more power than they think they have. Is there, uh, is there sort of something like a, I'm getting like a makerspace vibe? Yes, yeah. Because I'm thinking of some of the guys I met that had like a biohacking, like sort of makerspace where it was like they had the tools for you to show up and screw around with biohacking, um, but they weren't as much doing like, uh, you know, making, having people pay for, I don't know if they had paid memberships or not, but, but anyway, yeah, that's just a sort of sense of like, um, I guess a space for, it's like a practice space. Yeah. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of mystique to skills like these, where people associate them with the military or the police and so forth. But you know, for most of human history, people doing the fighting are regular people, and, and regular people had to have a, a general awareness of, of how to fight. And I think that helps you kind of both accept the world more. Mm. And also live in it more comfortably. Mm. Uh, because the more familiar you are with conflict, I think overall, in the long term, the less you engage in it. The more familiar with, contract, with conflict you are, the less you engage in it. Uh, say more about that. So, so at, at the moment, I think when you hear about fights, at least in the United States, you see fights, it's two guys getting like really sloppy 
on each other most of the time, or historically it was, right? They're, right. Um, but when I say historically, I mean the 90s, the 2000s, when we were growing up. Mm. Um, it's, you know, they get into shoving match, they swing a few wild punches, whatever. Right. Most of the fights that I found myself in, I wouldn't really call fights because this is how it went. Uh, you know, some guy is drunk and he is belligerent in some way and another person is belligerent and they're putting on a show for everyone else and for themselves, mm. um, which is actually a thing about conflict in general that I think becomes clearer once you engage in it is that there's always unspoken rules yeah. and those unspoken rules have to do with what kind of show you're putting on for the rest of the tribe. Uh, and now because of the, the rise in skill, you have many more individuals who would normally get into a fight in the past perhaps, but because they have the skills, they're aware of how many things can go wrong during a fight mm. and how chaotic things can get. Um, and so I believe right now, like, you know, I might hear my instructors be like, you don't know who has done like six months of grappling. So in the past, say you had done six months of grappling in your life mm. and no one in your small town had that almost guaranteed provided that you weren't too small, that no matter who you got into a fight with, you would win like without a doubt. Mm. Um, but now because everyone has that sort of familiar familiarity growing up, um, and more people interact with these skills, knowing just a little bit is enough of a deterrent. Because even if you're like, uh, you know, a black belt competitor or whatever, if you go in the street against some guy who's only done it for six months, that already changes the nature of the fight to being that much more dangerous than it wouldn't have been otherwise. Mm. And I actually think that teaching people small infantry tactics does the same thing for nations so right now you have special forces units and police SWAT teams and whatnot like going into a house willy-nilly um without really any competent uh opposition and all you need to do i believe is have a general idea of what their playbook is and then that becomes a very expensive consideration for for anyone to do and and I think that would be act as a deterrent in a lot of ways for violence. That is interesting. Is there so a lot a lot of times um, someone saying some you know if I were just sort of going to pattern match loosely um, saying a bunch of the sorts of things you're saying would be um, coming at it from a sort of ideological libertarian perspective. Um, it's sort of when you're talking about like gun rights and you know, the whole, a gun behind every blade of grass, you know, ethos of America that like the sort of like the people can do this like militia type thing. And, um, is there some of that in where you're coming from? Um, so I definitely appeal to them because they're easy to appeal to for, from this point of view on one side, though I actually, for this, this, specific project given the people who are already involved with it and their politics i've actually been pushing something closer to uh if you're a feminist and a queer and a liberal then you should know how to defend yourself because if you don't trust the police then who's going to do it that is interesting that is timely 
Interesting. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. This is probably an offensive bad thing to say. I, but I don't think you'll mind. Um, I was seeing today, I don't remember who it was, was tweeting about, like, bring back feminine guns. Um, they, they were quote tweeting some picture of, like, a really kind of feminine looking, not unattractive pistol. Um, and there's something funny about uh, the ethos there. Uh, someone I used to know, um, her mom also would just carry this tiny little pistol in a pink purse. Um, I don't think that's the, the, the ethos you're describing specifically, but uh, it's kind of cool. Yeah, um, I, I, would, <laughs> I think I would like if, if everyone could find an aesthetic for being able to take charge of their own world if they were so inclined, or to know that that is possible at any time. Hell yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm in favor so far. I'm in favor so far. Um, oh, Leo says, hey, now that was a Whitney Wolverine. Embryo's going to take up archery. Should I pull up a picture of the Whitney Wolverine just for... I'm sure it's a beautiful tool. I've suddenly made flight sim too small. Let me fix that. Um, this uh, streaming software is always a little bit of a pain in the ass. Let's get that back how it was. Cool. Let me take a look really quick at the questions we had. Oh, well, wait, hold on. We got a effort post by Wandre. Um, he said a connection that he made with what you're saying is uh, that physical conflict used to be a somewhat more civilian act and or the formalization of physical conflict with governments, and at least here in the U.S., the divide between civilian and government and military is like humongous. So even though I can see the value in the idea of training combat or looking at those models, my mind like can't connect how that would ever relate to anything I'm doing here or plan to do in the future other than the occasional possibility of physical conflict. But... Reflame, reframing it as physical combat has been compartmentalized over time, but it's still there and happening, but it's been sort of pushed onto organizations or structures or something, then that helped Wanderer understand it better. Um, yeah, go, go ahead. So, I mean, that is, I think, part of my what I see as my broader mission is decompartmentalization uh, across all areas where it's wherever it's possible um and this is generally about that because i don't actually see conflict as being primarily about defense or anything like that but about the wider social structure and the power dynamics that have to do with that mm -hmm. and because of the the separation because of the compartmentalization people kind of assume that these specialists have way more power over them than they actually do. And then the other thing is they might have ideas about what is necessary and what is unnecessary because of what the specialists are doing behind the scenes. Um, so you have both these things that, to me, we, we can see that in education or the medical system as well. You know, mm. uh, we go to doctors 
in a certain way, there's all this talk. I think there's been memes about doctors Googling stuff. Oh, yeah. And when I worked under doctors, I certainly preferred, actually, when they were Googling stuff. Same. No, I've um, had that exact experience, and I actually was glad that this guy started Googling stuff. Um, but there is an idea that without a doctor, then you cannot come up with some sort of solution that might work uh, satisfactorily. Um, that without government health care, you won't be able to take care of yourself, when in fact, for most everyday healthcare maintenance things, um, anyone can learn how to, for instance, do sutures or, um, you know, clean, clean a wound, um, do range of motion tests and so on to, to kind of figure things out on our own. Uh, but because of the, the way we're specialized in society, there's a idea that you can't do it for yourself. Um, which I think in the long term tends to, to impact how a person feels about their world. So there's kind of like a concept of alienation from uh, the means of orientation or something. Exactly. Like uh-huh. Yeah, I like that about decompartmentalization. I, I, I got an image in my mind of like a, how would you, what do they call that? Uh, like a topographical map where with like, you know, high skill areas or whatever but maybe the perception is that it's way spikier than it is yep um, you know that there's way more to, to expertise than like there is i mean definitely seems to be the case um th though there's also this other side that like in you know the navy has like rail guns and stuff right um mm -hmm. so how, how do you think about that like there are a couple true uh you know differentials um, in technical ability or tech, literal technology or access to, to tools and stuff. How do you think about it? How does that fit in? So I actually think that's that's part of why doing this for yourself, people doing this for themselves is really important because it, I think it really hones in the importance of basically the human will and agency and the, the nature of conflict. I think a lot of people, when they think about conflict, they think about it in a, like a, almost like rationalist who would win terms, like who has the most weapons, who has the better logistics, uh, who has the best specs. Like, you know, with these planes, if they were suddenly dog, you know, you put machine guns on them and they all started dogfighting, right? Mm -hmm. um, then you analyze them based on, on the specifications perhaps. And you say, okay, there's a high probability that this cub will do nothing against a military plane mm -hmm. or, you know, a super Tucano will never be able to take uh, an F-35 or whatever mm -hmm. uh, due to the specifications. Uh, however, I think familiarizing yourself directly more with conflict kind of teaches a completely different story. And in history, we have countless examples. Um, most recently, we have Vietnam, Chechnya, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Yeah, and, and what's the lesson of those? Is it, This is sort of like the insurgent idea. Uh, well, uh, uh, the underlying lesson to me is that if if a people wants to win something, they will win something. And if they don't want to win something, they will not win something. So if you are up against the U.S. Navy, say, and you are Somalia, um, how much does the U.S. Navy actually want to do in order to beat you and is that more than what you want right and which which goes into something that leo 
is saying here, uh, the thing with fighting is that for the most part you don't need to be better than your enemies, you just need to make defeating you more expensive than they can afford. There's this... Uh, no, go ahead. And, and I was just wanted to say that the expensive than you can afford does not have to be wholly materialist or economical. It can also be uh, spiritual, for instance, if, if defeating you means that they have to cross a line that decreases trust from their base then that that's part of the the cost yeah there's this there's this uh historian carol quigley who i'm a mega fan of who has this great book um where is it i have it in here somewhere i have not read the whole book but i read the first chapter and it was like amazing um it'll come to me um he has a couple a couple of big books evolution of civilizations is one tragedy and hope is another one and then he has one about war and he, his account of like the nature of war it actually does ground out as like the aim of of physical conflict is to reduce the will of the opponent to fight not for example to destroy the enemy yep yep um so that seems pretty constant um oh there it is my my uh, screen is balancing on top of it. Weapon Systems and Political Stability. That's the book. Interesting. Okay, so sort of like raising the waterline of um, uh, competence and, and comfort with physical conflict and, and especially in the, the sort of squad version of that Yes, because I think it's it's actually like relatively easy for people to imagine things on the strategic level in some ways, um, as well as on the individual level, like you know a boxing ring or people playing Civ Five. Uh huh. However, the in between stuff is is a little more difficult, I think, for people to imagine. And if you don't connect all of that, if you can't like see how the pattern is the same, whether it's individual. Um, five people or, or five million, then it it's actually harder to understand the whole thing, which is why I think the squad level is like a, a nice little um, important stepping stone in between. That's that's interesting. I'm I'm surprised that more of this doesn't already exist. Do why, why or does it? So it does, but in a very narrow context, which is to say, um, what they you know, there's this idea in the military of people where you break glass in times of war. Mm. Uh, those kinds of people where they, they make um, not great garrison soldiers, but they make great wartime soldiers. Mm -hmm. And from that tradition, you have plenty of this going on. But obviously, that is a tradition that, again, the moment there's peace, they kind of get relegated uh, by the military. Um, and so... The, the line between them isn't as strong. However, um, judging by training manuals and stuff that people put out, it is something that is becoming, like, people are becoming more aware of it um, in the military and most, I think, special forces units in the, in the United States and the Marines operate under these principles, or at least do on paper, or at least they give tribute to it in terms of values. Right. Um, uh, can I ask which, uh, just, just sort of randomly, um, which military you were in? 
I was in the U.S. Army. Got it. And was that that was a few years worth? Yes. Uh, so I just did four active years and, and four reserve years. Got it. Um, interesting. Very cool. Um, let me take a look at some of the questions we had, just because I want to sort of get a scope of of stuff. But th that is a great uh, sort of sense of that project. And um, later, you know, when you've got something to to you know spread the word on, or you want me to throw a link in like the YouTube video, I'll totally I'll totally uh, want to share that because it sounds super cool to me. Um, I will make sure I have that. Great. This week. Excellent. Um, okay, so Ray, you say some spicy things sometimes. What's up with that? Uh, so, sometimes people think I do these things on purpose, which in a way I am in the sense that I'm doing everything on purpose. However, I also come from a lot of different cultures, um, and being in between all of them has made me appear very weird, though obviously to me I'm the most normal person in the world. Right. Um, okay. I guess, do you have any theor... Um, well, maybe I should just go ahead and ask Zach's question. Um, we might as well just knock it out, because I, mm -hmm. I, I want to knock it out. So, I'm going to say this in quotes, so that if, if some douchebag decides to clip this, it won't seem like I am saying this crazy thing that you said. Uh -huh. So, I'm yes. going to keep moving my fingers in I the will air. gladly take uh, <laughs> all responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, there's no reason for, you know, any... any, uh, any censorship of, of, of a tweet but um, the I will read the tweet the tweet by Ray says things I'm in favor of genocide rape mutilation slavery war industrial exploitation factory farming climate change denialism anti-vaxxers Muslim terrorism Nazis racism child labor torture and unconditionally you and so the question from from Zach of course was what did he mean by this um, what what it do, do you want to give a give a thought on, on, on that? Yeah, so I think the confusion with that and the thing that I was probably poking at with that tweet is that we have a view of things often as monocausal. Um, and at some point that broke for me. So I tend to view things as omnicausal so that everything is connected to everything and everything is caused by the rest of reality. Um, if you look at the history of innovation, oftentimes people, when they, they map out how something was invented, they tend to cut away a lot of the, um, little necessary parts that seem to not fit with the overall story that they have decided. It's usually like a linear story of, okay, so you needed this thing, this thing, this thing, and you put it together and the airplane was inevitably invented. Um, however, I think if you stare at this closely, you start to realize that there were many, many, many things that needed to happen for that first airplane to go up in exactly the way it did. And that ultimately speaking, if you have some sort of counterfactual world, it is just that, it's counterfactual. And um, the reality we have is the only one we have access to. So all those other things that might not have seemed necessary are indeed necessary to lead to that thing. 
So for whoever's reading that tweet, I would assume that all those things were necessary to lead to that person. And in fact, right now, chances are a lot of those things are happening in the rest of the world. And I do not think that that individual, like for instance myself, I don't think I would exist without those things currently happening. So I'm, I'm taking that as kind of um, sort of like a, a, a spacious attention would be one way to put it. Um, and a, and a sort of uh, a desire to keep your, 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 how would I put it? It's sort of, um, I mean, know the truth about what, what caused us and how we got here and what we're doing and, and why. Um, including the, the dark side of that. I'm getting a sense of like, you know, sort of like Satan too had a role in the creation of the world or something. There's, there's something that like feels like sort of uh, both very wholesome and, and, and also um, there is a, there's at least a taboo next door. Yeah, so I sometimes, and it's been happening more often in the last two years or so, sometimes people like treat me as if I'm like uh, a hippie or something singing Kumbaya and Peace and Love, huh. uh, which I am in a way. However, um, my conclusions there come from also looking at all these other things. And so when I address something like you know, saying everyone is good, or when I say to someone you are perfect as you are, I want to be very clear that I am including all those other things in them that they may not like about themselves. Um, right. And I am seeing it, and I find it good. And I don't think that would be as impactful or taken as seriously if I did not show that I was keeping all those other things in mind. Yeah, can we can we talk about for a bit about um, some spirituality related stuff? Um, I, you know, I, you know, this, this it's sort of interesting to me because I showed up to Twitter and was surprised to find out that there was a lot of talk about like cool psychological concepts, like Jung's idea of the shadow, and I was like, I didn't know people were talking about this stuff. It's sort of like almost like a meme, um, but. Um, is is that one way to orient on on your mindset is with this idea of, of sort of acknowledging the shadow or relating to the, the sort of dark side yeah you could say um i mean the the term that i came upon in a dream one day was petting the monster uh though i, I believe that would come down to eating the shadow in, in the Jungian sense um and a lot of what i'm doing is trying to eat everyone's shadow in a way or to I mean personally it felt to me like I let my shadows take over and it turned out that they were really good and, and nice and wholesome uh -huh. <laughs> but uh, underneath uh -huh. and I get the impression that for many people the thing that actually makes it destructive is the hiding um, the like being split causes the internal conflict which then drives external conflict which causes a lot of harm um so when i say things like this oftentimes i'm trying 
to show people who might be like on the edge in a way that there is someone out there who has seen these things and has found all of it good so that mm. they may give themselves permission to think a thought similar to that. We'll, we'll chat stands this, it seems. Um, Panfagus AF. Um, what do you think? Okay, I think about this a bunch. Um, I actually, so I went through a period of being pretty depressed last year, I guess this was. Um, and a couple months, just shitty months, a lot of different reasons. Um, and I remember thinking at one point that my sleeping self seemed to be a better person than my waking self. Um, it was like the sort of uh, thing you would maybe expect or want, or I don't know, had flipped upside down. Um, kind of like the dark, you know, lazy, miserable, all these different, irritable, etc. like was the waking me. And when I would sleep and I would like go on these cool adventures and I would have good ideas and I would actually think about my real life problems in like a productive way. And it is sort of this, this distinct sense of like inversion. Um, and I think I managed to flip it back. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Um, but it makes me think about that. Like, can you really eat the shadow, I guess? I mean, isn't there some kind of like meta thing that gets repressed, even if you try to sort of obtain everything that you know of, uh, in, in, in your, in your spirit? So it's, uh, it's funny you should say that because one thing I've noticed about this process is the amount of continuity between my waking self and my sleeping self. So that a lot of times, um, stuff that you might say is good, that whatever I'm working on during the day just continues mm. when I'm sleeping. <laughs> and so I wake up the ne next morning, um, and there is less separation between the two states, um, which I do take as some small measure of evidence that shadow eating has happened. Right. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. There, this is, uh, have you ever read the Hagakure? Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, I grew up on that. I, I, it's one, one book that I became very obsessed with in my adolescence. Um, and they have a few lines in there about dreams. Um, and how you want to endeavor to be the person that you would be when waking in your dreams. Um, I don't know how useful the, the sort of instruction is, like, as stated, but, uh, but they definitely talk about that. That's sort of the, you know, your, your dream, dream character matters. I definitely see it as a fight like you train and train like you fight scenario um, mm. when it comes to dreams. Because I do believe that it's putting together many things that might have been compartmentalized during the day. And so how you put them together matters for how you behave when you're awake. Mm. So you sound like you've done a bunch of introspection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another way to put it is that I've spent a lot of time in dark holes. Mm. Yeah, that, that's fucking real. Um, 
do you have uh, mental practices that you do or recommend? Uh, so, <laughs> um, all of them, I'd say. Uh-huh. Like, like if you if you can, if it's been vaguely mentioned somewhere, I've probably tried it at some point, and I would say that all of them have been invaluable to me. Yeah. Um, and so, because of that, like if I'm generally asked that question, I would actually look at where the person who's asking that question is at and um, what they what tools they might already have in their toolbox that they haven't like uh, explored more that they might be in a place to explore more now. So say you did some Zen sitting three years ago and you find yourself curious now, then my thing would be go go sit. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the axes I've been fooling around with is trying to is uh, I, I reserve ha- half an hour each day um, for and initially it was for prayer and then it sort of turned into prayer or meditation or a particular embodied meditation um, where that's contrasted with quote meditation where the quote meditation is mo- is I'm immobile I'm just sitting or something mm-hmm. um, and I've specifically been leaning back and forth in this axis of um you know because in in prayer i ask questions i try to relate to some great being and you know and and there's a more active process rather than just noticing um and i don't know it sort of just seems like on different days i need different things or different things come naturally um that makes sense yeah And where, hmm. by the way, chat, everyone's been sort of, as far as I can tell, listening with rapt attention. Feel free to throw thoughts and, and questions for Ray. Um, otherwise, I'm just going to keep asking the stuff that, that interests me. Um, looking through here. Oh, there you go. We've got some questions coming in. So for that first question, I, I do not run competitively. I used to run addictively, we might say, uh, for the longest time. Hmm. I would say it was it's of all the addictions I've experienced, and I have oh, tried yeah. just about every That's drug, by the way. Uh, running has actually been the closest thing I've experienced to addiction. Yeah, interesting. I have run, I have run races in my life, but but not as an adult. Um, well, unless you count the military. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been addicted to to exercise. I know it's possible. I know of people who have. Why would you call it an addiction? Because I was. In, in retrospect, I was very clearly using it as a single-minded escape. Um, yeah. And if I didn't get it, I would have the reactions that people would often have from being fixated on one thing. Yeah, one of the ones I've been careful about is, is meditation, basically. Um, sort of getting to a state where I can just sit and like just be with myself in a way that, compared to my daily life, feels like blissing out. Yeah. Um, 
Beckman says he was addicted to ring as well. Yeah, it definitely uh, hurt my calves and such. Um, the other thing that I think <laughs> some of the people who cared about me were worried about is I really, really enjoyed snow runs. Uh. Um, so there was this almost like a game of chicken I would play with myself because the, the time between when you're exhausted and when you feel exhausted is much less in the, in the cold. Um, so you can like go further and then you might just get frostbite uh, on the way back. But it was a, a game I used to play. Yeah. I, had a, I did a, a few snowy runs in high school when I was in a shitty mood. Something really gratifying about it. Yeah, they they are I feel like very beautiful and if the the snow is powdery they're actually like less impact on the knees. Huh. Which is very nice. Um any thoughts on on Henry's question? Um why do you think there aren't more very successful people with weird mental practices? So I think if you look at history you'll find that almost all of them have weird <laughs> mental practices. Uh -huh. Um uh, you know, if you, if you look at their esoteric habits and so on, and it's only very recently that that is not prominent, my suspicion is actually that most people hide these things. Uh, when I look at, you know, just when you, you examine the pillars of any society, a lot of times they are doing things that the rest of society would or that they would tell the rest of society is not good for society, but they're doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. um, probably, you know, the relationship to what they're doing is different. Um, again, the difference between a fixation and a celebration, perhaps. Uh, but because of that, they might also be ashamed of, sh of sharing that with the world. Um, I also am quite confident, and I am betting here out loud, that... In our generation, um, the really successful people are going to come out hmm. uh, with very weird mental practices or m mental practices that would be seen as weird by the average American today, though maybe not weird by this group over here. <laughs> right. Yeah. I. So I've been studying Kanye West this year. Um, I don't know if you've seen how, any of my, my Kanye tweets, but it's sort of been a theme. Um, I'm convinced he is doing some some shit in his mind and people will say oh yeah kanye's crazy and he'll be like yeah i'm bipolar okay he got medicated okay he was you know um all this people already believe that he's like kooky or something but i think there are specific mental practices he does and it i don't know if it i don't know if he calls them practices but one thing i've noticed is he is very in his interviews he's very specific and almost superstitious about the use of words um he really avoided using the word abortion um, during one of his interviews. I think it's the Joe Rogan interview. Um, and a, a few other things like that where he says, I mean, he's like, I don't call it a mental breakdown. I call it a mental breakthrough. There's sort of like a, a what do you call it, manifestation and positivity vibe to it. But I think it probably gets pretty weird in his case. Yeah, I think he's aligned or decompartmentalize, like really well aligned uh, relative to the average person. And when you are that way, I believe all these, like all the words matter because they're pointing at beliefs that are held on each other like a house of cards. Um, hmm. And if you are trying to align with yourself 
it's usually not always, but it's usually important not to um, contradict yourself in a way that you know about. Right. It's uh, interesting because you see in different spiritual traditions, like strong recommendation to not, not be a hypocrite um, and also uh, uh, discouragement of um, Tashin was on here and he used this phrase, if not false speech, um, loop, uh, loose speech. It's basically like speaking in a lazy way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting too because it kind of vibes as superstitious. What, what do you think of that? Like, of superstition, or do you use that concept? So I think all those things actually, and and the reason why it's important for someone like Kanye to be careful about that thing is because it is actually speaking to the individual's worldview almost completely. So whenever someone says something, uh, I actually really, really like watching self-talk. Um, I, or I, you know, part of my everyday existence is paying very close attention to how people talk about themselves, um, to themselves, as well as the words that they are using, because it provides very strong clues uh, about how they view the world. Um, and... It may be superstitious, or it may appear superstitious in a sense, but I would say it's also not because you are kind of building a construct with your words at all times and with your thoughts. Um, And so if you construct something in a certain way, you're kind of stuck stuck with it. Mm. Uh, So if people are paying attention to that, they may not have the... You know, they they would probably not phrase it like like I am, but I'm choosing to frame it this way in order to appeal to the people I see off as my tribe. <laughs> but if I was dealing with a different tribe, perhaps, then I would say, you know, the, the spirits like it when mm-hmm. you uh, pay attention to them, which might sound superstitious. Though when I say that, I am, in my mind, I have something very natural behind that. Yeah, uh... I'm. I feel like I'm hearing some some resonance with my own worldview, where I I I can jump pretty smoothly back and forth between like the spirit language and the like naturalistic language, but it's just the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, maybe you can help me interpret something. Um, I've recently had the experience of. The, the sort of the heavens seeming more quiet lately um, and there's a bunch of other stuff going on in my life and changes that are happening and but how, how would you interpret that phenomenon my assumption or my first impression would be that things are clarifying for you Hmm. that whatever you might call it like whatever you're surfing or whatever your purpose or your mission is whatever that is is clearer than it was it feels like both so it feels like the world is becoming clearer um i've had a lot of issues in the past with sort of one of my themes has been am i living in reality Mm mm-hmm 
um, or am I living in some kind of dream or in a story or a narrative or am I dis am I it's sort of like distraction versus orientation and um, it has felt like the world has been clarifying but at the almost at the cost of some kind of spiritual orientation like sometimes the spiritual stuff is just so astoundingly clear um, a really pristine vision you know what I mean um, mm -hmm. and then th that's sort of faded this is like on the order of weeks so I'm not super worried um, but there's there is some truth to what you're saying on, on clarity but on the other hand it's like maybe letting go of some older way that I was getting clarity yeah so I, I do think that the world is getting clearer however um, it doesn't seem to me at least to be as much as as could be with yourself so like and then also i would assume that there is no no difference for us individually between those things on some level um but that so the world is clearly getting clearer in the sense that there's more information every day um uh, but the portion of clarity to things that are not clear is probably still kind of the same I would assume, or, or somewhat similar. So if you have, you know, coffee and a creamer um, in a in a mug, you can put like a few drops more creamer in it, and there's slightly more creamer. However, most of it is still coffee, mm. if that makes sense. Uh, connect the coffee and cream back? So in this case, the, the coffee would be um, uncertainty, and the creamer would be clarity. Hmm. Interesting. Do you um, work with people on this kind of spiritual stuff? Like one-on-one -on -one or anything like that? Yes, but only if they come to me, if that makes sense. I think it does, for sure. What do you think of gurus? I'm unsure if it's possible anymore. Um, hmm. it, it seems to me that they had a place in time and we're going somewhere where it is not possible because of the, the weight of the increasing information that is not possible for one person to take on that much as easily for, for a group of people. Interesting. Sometimes I hear people saying, like, we're going to get a whole golden age of cults or something like that as, like, the big narratives break down. That's one story I've, I feel like I've heard. But this is almost the opposite? Uh, so not necessarily. I, I do think we're, we're going to get better cults, and I think we're going to get better cults than we've ever had. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just it's just that I, I don't think it's going to be possible for a cult to rest on the shoulders of a leader as easily. So that the cult would be more uh, bottom-up in a way because the leader, there are no leaders who are strong enough to, to deal with our current world. Why is that? What is it the state of, you know, is it something about the world that makes that seem likely to you? I believe it's uh, the complexity of the information that we're dealing with. Yeah. 
decentralized autonomous cults. Like, uh, and this goes back to like small infantry stuff. Yeah. If, if I, as an officer, tell you to go on a mission and then I ask you to keep radio contact and I'm like, okay, do this now, do this now, tell me what's going on, do this now, do this now, no, don't do that. That is really slow. Um, and if your enemy isn't doing that, they're going to be moving much more faster, which means they're going to disrupt you much more quickly, which is why certain types of units kind of go away with that entirely and are just like, I'm going to tell you why we're doing what we're doing. You figure the rest out um, on your own. Is that the, and, the commander's intent? I've heard that phrase before. Yes, yeah. Right. Um, and that's a way, again, to basically have a cult without um, having a leader in the in the old sense. Hmm. I, I'd be curious in general to, for a sort of, for more of your thoughts on history or like where we are in history. Let me know if that's too broad. No, I think I can find something so i do think we are in a really interesting time that has parallels to the period about a thousand years before rome like that period where things were really popping off um in greece in some ways and then in india um and in china like so that kind of period which i think has commonalities maybe in different areas, in different times. So while I am pointing to that specific time for those places, um, there would be similar times or similar mental places that would be at different times. So that, you know, in, in Polynesia or whatever, it might be in the 12th or 13th century where you, you have some of these dynamics where you are beginning to conquer nature, so to speak. However, there's still lots and lots of uncertainty. Um, mm. And so there's still a need for strong belief while not knowing what's going on. Um, to contrast with, you know, the, the Roman Empire, where I think a lot of that is, is settled and you get things that look more close to, like, modern belief systems, in a way, for a short time there. Um or, you know, for a couple hundred years. Right. So there's sort of... That's interesting. So what, that's an interesting way to break it down. So it's sort of like times where you need more faith that you're going to figure the world out versus times yeah. where you're maybe exploiting a, a paradigm or something like that? Yes, or um, faith that you can live in the world without completely figuring it out. Mm. Uh because I think we've been on this train for the last couple hundred years um, where we're constantly figuring things out. Um, and I think we're near the peak of that, of where we can comprehend everything we've found. Um, and so effectively, even though uh, there's this metaphor I like to use where sometimes a full glass and an empty glass kind of look like the same thing. Mm. Um in terms of if the glass is full of water. Right. And I think with all this information that we're dealing with, we are now having to deal with a similar 
kind of uncertainty that those other people in those other times had to deal with. And so because of that, you will probably see uh, elements of beliefs and uh, structures of organization from those times that become relevant again. Yeah, can you color that in for me a little more? Like, what, what a, yeah, I don't know. What, is it just that, like, is it like the internet, basically? Is it like the super high speed of information? Is it like, uh, moving to a virtual world? Um, what, is it AI? Is it just all, is it like a lot of technological stuff that's uncertain? Right, so I can, I can sum it up by the high speed of information. Yeah. Um, but then that information is also changing the agents. And so that change on us, the, the agents in this environment, is, um, I think, too fast now for us to track um, or to make sense of normally in, in the way. So I guess uh, an easy thing to look at it would be like value systems, right? Mm. Uh, under a certain amount of incoming information, you can start to sort data into useful and not useful. Um, and that might help you uh, when you have a steady um, incoming stream of data uh, that's not increasing in a way. But once you get to a certain point, if the stream gets too um, fast, we should say, or if there's too much data coming in, then suddenly this filtering uh, process gets stopped up and slows down the system. And so then it becomes important, perhaps, to say we're not going to filter this data anymore and we're just going to take it all in and deal with it. Mm. Um, and from the point of view of value systems, I could say that that filtering would come across internally to the, like, the phenomena of the person as this is good and this is bad um, or variations of that. And so then now I think we require some way to make sense of all this information that doesn't have that filtering happening anymore. Because if we're doing the filtering, we're going to get stopped up, um, which I might say, like, you know, when, when someone's anxious, mm. um, a lot of times I would say something like that is happening. And it's partially caused by judgment that comes from this kind of filtering. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I think there's also well, there's something like a well, it's interesting. Sort of, you're, you're talking about sort of anxiety and certainty. Um, you did get a question um, from Deep Fates. Why is his confidence in his own worldview so high? Uh, and I'd be curious to know your reaction to that question or how you take that. Uh, so my first patient um was hit by an antenna and when i say an antenna i mean like a 30 meter metal tube um came down on his head and when i i was the first medic on the scene mm. and i started thinking about all the things that could possibly go wrong and going through all the mental checklists that i had prepared for for this day um that i've been preparing for for months and while I was doing that, I was going through the probabilities, or trying to in my head, of, of what would work best in the situation. And because of that, I froze. Mm. And 
I was not able to to check him as well because of freezing on the job. Um, so other medics came up and they pushed me off and they, they handled it. Um, but, you know, this is a very, like, serious make or break moment in a medic's life because if you don't figure it out quickly, then in the military, at least what they do is they put you in a hospital or, you know, doing clinical work. Right. Um, and you don't get to do what you've trained for. Um, so that really kind of changed the way I look at things very drastically. Um, and I kind of simplified things and I, you know, remembered the, the basic thing is air goes in and out, blood goes round and round, everything else I can figure out. Mm. Um, and then you combine that with another time later in my career where I had a, a commander who was similarly anxious and because of that he couldn't really make decisions about what we were doing, where we were going and so on um, whenever we were having field exercises and what happened was um, you know myself and and the the other assistant the commander who was higher ranking than me but only by like one rank you know he was a sergeant we ended up making a lot of the decisions and then just getting him to sign off on it until one day he had a panic attack and panic attacks are fine in a way they're they're normal for for everyone in this life today mm -hmm. but it's not fine for a commander of a military unit to have a panic attack um so the other place where it's not fine is if you're in a fight if i'm doubting everything at that time I'm thinking, and if I'm thinking and the other guy's not thinking, the other guy will win. Um, so all those things combine to make me actively try to be as calm as possible, which I believe might come off as confidence, though I would say that that confidence is confidence in uncertainty and confidence that the environment will correct me. Um, for instance, if I'm overconfident in a fight, the other person will make use of that, too. Um, right. And when I make strong statements like I make, I assume I attract other people to correct them much more quickly than if I hedged everything. If you ever found anything I wrote years ago, you would find, like, everything is hedged, like, 50 times, and I've filled each paper with, like, hundreds of sources. Um, and if you ask for, for any statement, I actually still will have many of those sources it's just that i don't give them to people because i'm trying to balance out the amount of doubt that people have in in this tribe so to speak yeah um yeah and i and i hope that if i do things in this calm confident way that everyone else will start doing it too because i actually think we would do a lot better than whoever else is in charge right now <laughs> yeah it's interesting i uh <laughs> i like that you threw that in there i i it's interesting too because a lot of the so first of all you handled that question better than i would have because i i kind of re at um excessive skepticism and i get kind of hyped up about it um i i generally um I think I spent a long time around rationalists and I sort of absorbed uh, like 
quote-unquote skeptical ethos that is like ultimately like very unbalanced and incorrect um where it's sort of like you know the type of skepticism that is that forgets that time is passing and you're they're sort of like you know standing in the void evaluating things outside of time um all the while sort of like losing the opportunity to act and i get riled up about it but you you, you definitely um are kind of uh I thought, I thought that was a good answer. Let me just put it like that. Um, so, something I can learn from that is why I'm taking a second to process it. Uh, yeah, there's sort of like the demands of action um, tracked in a more live way, um, I guess, through these experiences you've had. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I guess another way I would try to explain it is that a lot of times a metaphor I like is I'm in a river and the river is flowing um, and I can swim against it or I can swim to the side or whatever and not go with the current, uh, but it's not going to be as smooth as if I just follow the current. Um, I think in algorithms and such people talk about exploration versus exploitation yeah um and in the military they might talk about reconnaissance um and to me what i'm doing is exploration through explore exploitation or reconnaissance by fire where you you don't know what's all out there but you don't have a lot of time so you just fire randomly into where you think people might be um and if they are they will respond and you will see them Right. I I often find that some people really don't have the sense that, like, act, this is going to sound a little weird, but I think you might know what I mean. Some people really don't have the sense that action is real. Um, there's just, like, an, a total, like, evaluation of, like, verbal possibilities. Um, or maybe it's just that, like, a sort of discourse activity has taken over when you talk about decision-making. Um, and then there are these other people that are, like, doers or whatever and a lot of time doers type type people will express like anti-intellectualism um they'll say that like thinking's bad and i guess it's you know because they'll, they'll have learned to just do stuff but um maybe gone too far in some direction um do you have any thoughts on that synthesis yeah i think those are both examples of some effects of specialization uh, which I, I do see as well and good, but, you know, it, it pays to believe these things if you are in a niche. Mm. Um, so if you're in a niche for thinking, then it, it does, it is a carrot for us to think that this is the most important thing and everything else sort of is useless and sucks. Um, and if you're in a niche for doing, it, it's important to, to believe that as well at times, especially if you're thinking transactionally and in a zero-sum way. Totally. Uh, Vecna had a question. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Vecna had a question. Ray used a lot of sources, but what materials does he find are the most important in shaping his views today? I actually cannot. It, it's, it gets harder every day for me to, to point at one source, mm. um, or even 5 or 20 or 30 or 40, because it's it's hard for me to ignore how important every single detail is uh, to my worldview the next day um 
yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to name. It's, what I end up doing usually is I just pick the sources that would most resonate with the person I'm talking to typically. Yeah, there's a thing I've heard that um, trained mathematicians will often um, predict whether a formula will, this is not going to be the right language for it, but like w whether a formula will compute, like whether a proof will work, I guess. Um, and before they're able to, they'll sort of predict it with better reliability, um, even before they're able to prove it. Um, and I, I feel like thinkers can often be in that state where they have a view and it's sort of, um, I don't know. I, I wonder why it is that the, that the conversation about sources gets so hairy. I have trouble with it because on one hand you want to like give sources, but there's sort of like, it's just not the case that all the truths we need to believe are written down in books already. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I did toy with the, with the idea of answering with the, Oh, you know, the birds I see every day or the trees I see every day, right. which oftentimes that does feel like the, the most relevant source. I was once um, in some sort of uh, forecasting competition and I honestly wrote down in the notes that I made this forecast uh, in this prediction market because of the way a squirrel moved on, on the branch, uh -huh. um, which pissed a lot of people off uh -huh. on, on the team, <laughs> you know, because they wanted a, a more, like, typical impact evaluation or breakdown or probability right. estimate. Um, but at the time, that was the, the, the clearest source to me. Yeah. <laughs> So what's what's on your mind these days? What do you what are you like thinking about or working on? Uh, so I guess I've kind of delved more into parenting. Uh, just right, you mentioned because I'm I would like to have to try to start to have a child next year, um, mm -hmm. which then makes me want to resolve a lot of the like results of having been parented if that makes sense mm. uh like i because when i look at people every day i'm generally looking at their well-being and how they interact with each other and where that's coming from and it's very hard to ignore the fact that we're all carrying a lot of pain around um and a lot of that pain comes from experiences that don't have explanations for that individual yet um another way i would put it is you know you haven't figured out what to learn from the pain yet mm. um and i guess i am trying to do some spring cleaning there yeah and see if i can get uh most of that pain resolved so that you know the the child when it comes by doesn't have to carry quite as much of it as as it would if say the child came along now, not, yeah. not that it would be bad if it did. If I can do it, then I'm gonna do it. Right. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. T tell me more about the the sort of theory there. Um, do you believe in things like intergenerational trauma transfer or cultural traumas? Yeah. So I will say that I believe in everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> In a sense, I also think that belief is is a, a thing that we construct. Um, so, but with those caveats, yes, uh -huh. <laughs> I do. And 
when 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 I talk about pain in that way, I, I am talking about um, intergenerational trauma. Uh, I just avoided using the word trauma, uh, maybe in a Kanye-like way, uh -huh. because because I think it is associated with a sort of pathologizing, um, and I believe that pain is information, or I believe that it's useful to think that painful pain is information. So then if it's trauma, usually the reaction is I have some sort of disease or disorder Mm -hmm. um, that cannot ever be overcome. Uh, whereas when the way I think about pain, when I say pain, I'm thinking power. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so when I say there's all this pain over time, I am mentally viewing it as power sitting on the table, sensitivity. It's interesting that the, that it's the Sith who draw power from, from pain and suffering, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, though, I guess that's why Luke's the Dark Jedi. Oh yeah, Inter go on. I haven't heard the specific take. I know I, he does get darker between the second and third of his movies. Yeah, so I, I think the interesting thing about Luke is that he, in the end, he does continue his father's legacy. He does use both the dark side and the light side. And that is part of what makes him as powerful as he is. Where, where do you... Maybe I'm forgetting something obvious. Well, pretend, mm -hmm. that, pretend I'm just like, no, he's a Jedi. Right. Like, like pretend I'm disagreeing with you. Uh-huh. So, um, does he or does he not use Force Lightning? I guess would be the, the simple, rationalist way to get that out of the way. Hold on. Does he? Does, for, does Luke use Force Lightning? I believe he does. I'm looking this up. Uh, it says he does in the, in the book. We gotta have some some hardcore Star Wars people in the chat right now. Yeah, they would probably know better than me. Okay, so they're saying one guy in Quora says no in the Disney canon, but yes in the Legends canon. Okay. So, failing that, right. I will then appeal to the fact that he is called the Dark Jedi, is he not? Is he? No, is he? I don't, I don't know. I haven't heard that. Oh. Yeah, Leo's saying he doesn't use it in the movies. Oh, he okay. ch chokes guards in the palace and loses himself <laughs> in the fight against Vader. Okay. Well, I will then take that as an opportunity. Um... If you say he chokes guards, yeah, <laughs> and point at that, <laughs> you go with that. Well, well, never mind about Star Wars. We're going to get thrown mm -hmm. by Star Wars in particular. Um, yeah, you're talking about synthesis. You're talking about sort of, mm -hmm. sort of synthesis again. Um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting. I, w I wish to learn some of your ways, oh Ray. I'm thinking about it. Maybe I'll maybe I'll go to one of your training camps or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I will be moving in 15 days or so, but I'll be back in the United States. Yeah, where Hopefully are you? In in a year or so. If this isn't if this isn't doxy in the wrong way, mm -hmm. where where are you moving? 
So I'll be going to Brazil uh, for six months. Oh, yeah. And, then, and maybe Thailand after that and Ethiopia. Those sound like awesome places to be. I'd, I'd love to visit all of them. What's, what's in Brazil for you? So that's it's probably like the cheapest way to continue training MMA um, on a budget. And also it has some of the best scenes in the world at such a low cost. Um, you know, they put a lot of UFC fighters out and so on. So that would be the, the main focus in Brazil, though. It's also to try and resolve some of the, the pain um, from my childhood. Uh, yeah. And so on. Cool. Because, uh, yeah, I feel like I might shake some things loose if I started speaking Portuguese again. Right, for sure. I was going to say, you might, you might remember some mm -hmm. Portuguese. going through this uh what historical figures have you have you been interested in I, i've heard you talk about i think i saw you reference malcolm x somewhere as some someone interesting um do you have like a short list of i don't know top top guys i can't say i do unfortunately yeah um i can tell you what's been like recurring in a way um, well, actually, even then, it's it's pretty pretty varied. Um, you could also just tell me about your historical study in general, like has it and how that fits into your worldview. So I'd say that's like it's inextricably tied to each other. Um, I've always been curious about where we came from and so on. Mm. So whenever I had a chance to read anything involving history, I, I did. Uh, and that has been a kind of a, a lifelong affair for, for as long as I remember. Um, so before the mat, you might say that every time... I had something to check i would check history mm. um and, and use that as a sort of gauge of like does this pattern hold here uh and then because it was very varied and because i did not necessarily follow a syllabus or anything like that um it then became easy for me to see patterns in very disparate cultures over time, um, which I think also lends to that confidence in a way, <laughs> because if I can say this thing is present in like 15 different societies, right. uh, but not three others, then it gives me uh, like a, a feeling you might, of, of how present this pattern is in humanity, which then makes it easier for me to deal with whatever person is in front of me, uh, even even if they come from a completely different background. Yeah, I've been interested in trying to identify more um, sort of like historically universal concepts where like athlete is more universal than, you know, football player type mm -hmm. of thing. Um, I've been trying to figure out what Twitter is. Um, 
there's a there's a town square type interpretation. There's another one mm -hmm. which is that we're all like not we're all, but like a lot of us are like local entertainers or something yeah. like that. How, how do you see Twitter in that? Or did, yeah. It strikes me as a watering hole, or like where you, where you do your laundry, like um, in a lot of societies, you know, where they don't have um, laundry machines uh -huh. and dryers and so forth. Right? You you go down to the the closest source of water with the um, other people and you do your laundry. Oftentimes, but not always, it's the women. And to me. Twitter has that vibe. Yeah. How how long have you been on Twitter, and how how'd you get into it? So uh, I guess I've technically been on it since 2012 or something, but I've actually been ignoring it for most of that time. I only really got into Twitter last year when Celentelechia convinced me um, to get on Twitter finally, and um, also COVID was happening. And I'd realized that over the years, I'd come to rely in a way on having an interaction that's like a watering hole. Like, you know, literally going to a bar and just reading stuff as I'm hearing everyone else around me. Totally. Um, things like that. Uh, and all those little tiny... The way I would put it is, I guess I derive value out of interacting with people that I do not deeply, completely love. Uh-huh. <laughs> and... <laughs> and having that taken away, I guess, or deciding not to get that after COVID um, kind of left that space open, and I used Twitter. <laughs> totally. This is part of why I started on Twitch, for what it's worth. I I feel pretty good. I mean, you know, God willing, this pandemic shit will not be a humongous problem in America very soon. God willing. Um, but... Um, but, you know, so it's sort of, I, I'm leery to call things over, ever. Um, but uh, I definitely had have had some sort of extrovert energy that I just, it just, I had to do something. And it's like, I got on Twitter, I started writing, I, I started doing Twitch stuff um, and YouTube videos. It, it all kind of hit the spot, you know? Um, and I'm glad I did it, but it, it's not the same as, as hanging out IRL. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you've been on Twitter for... Oh, so it was basically for the last year. Yep, that's it. Solid. Yeah. I'm... And it's it, it has been really great. Like, I, I met Vogel uh, and Brooke uh -huh. just a couple months in. Um, and I feel like my entire purpose with it is to, to end up meeting people in person right. um, because I think this network is really important <laughs> um, and, and the more of us do this kind of thing uh, the more wonderful it will be yeah what, what kind of people do you want to meet or like how do you see that like unfolding over time is it uh, yeah do you, or do you thinking are you thinking about the idea of like the scene as like a I don't know what what role does that play for you. Uh, so, I think in a way, 
it, well, if I look at it historically, I think we're forming an ethnicity. Okay. <laughs> so what you're saying you know, is we're going to start mating with each other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I assume that's already happening. Yeah. Uh, but the, like a, so something a little more than a, a philosophical school. Um, uh-huh. Something like a an exploratory tribe, you know, like the like the the Norse raiders going out, or um, a lot of the whatever the Indo-Europeans were that went out on their chariots chariots alone. Um, wherever they came from, whatever that scene was, I think we're in something like that right now. Um, and as many of those dots, dots, speaking of people, as many of us that can be connected to each other, I think it makes the, the group as a whole stronger. Um, and my suspicion is yeah. that in the long term, it'll make the, the world stronger. Yeah. What are the distinctive features of this, of this, uh, proto ethnicity? So I can't tell you that exactly, but I can tell you that I absolutely know it when I see it. It only takes me about like two minutes in person now um, when I when I meet someone that's compatible to, to, to be like, okay, this person is going to work with all the other people. Okay, so but, well, there's and then what, but what is the what are the characteristics of the group? You know what I mean? I mean, I guess mm-hmm. some, some of the things we. So some people people would. Sorry, I'm tripling tripping over my words here people would focus on different features of it so some people would say being intellectual is like an important part but not too intellectual or something like that um mm-hmm. you know some people i don't know so so for example tyler alterman um moved to portugal and got a bunch of people living in portugal and moving over there's the portugal crew and i ended up having this little debate with him about whether it would be good or bad to bring more Silicon Valley characteristics into that zone. Now, I have nothing to do with those that specific group. I wasn't there or whatever, so we're, I'm just bullshitting so I can speculate whatever I, I want to. And um, I was more like pro. You know, like, I was, I, I'm more like Silicon Valley has a lot of good things going for it. You know, this gigantic economic engine. And he was more anti. He was like, no, there's, like, fucked up things about the culture and, like, blah, blah, blah. So... I guess, yeah, points of emphasis for you on, like, the nature of this group would be interesting to me. So I think there is a... There's definitely a curiosity to it that underneath is a little more positive than the other curious groups out out there. Hmm. Uh, and if I, the reason why I'm keeping it vague is because I'm like very wary of ending up with a, you know, a a naked chicken. Um, uh, uh, yeah, with a, you know, you ask me what's a human and that, that old problem. Um, which is why I think it's like one of those things where I really do believe, you know, it and I think for a lot of people, the same thing is going on. Um, but when I say it, there are also things about the way I interact in person that are pretty like strong filters. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that I do not think people can tolerate if they do not have some characteristic that um, meshes well with this group. Uh-huh. And most of that is, when I say that, you might think it's like triggering words or anything, but it's, a, it's actually a lot of it is nonverbal. It's like, yeah, I think I've seen you tweeting about like, like stuff like eye contact. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. I, I'm trying to think about how I fit into that. I often, I definitely have reactions to people's like vibe and energy and eye contact and stuff, but I think you've got powers, dude. So I, I feel like I would be be willing to tolerate some amount of weirdness. Though also, I, I've never met you in person, so I, it might just be totally chill. But uh -huh. um, I don't know. It's just a thought. Yeah, the curiosity. Yeah. I also enjoy backyard barbecues. Uh huh. <laughs> like everyone else. Yeah, 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 for sure. Got a grill, man. Um, I was just gonna look through my my question list, unless you had something you wanted to throw out there. Nothing at the moment. All right. Um, someone asked uh, Anan asked for your thoughts on quitters. I don't know why they asked that. If that's something mm -hmm. you talk about, or if they're it's just maybe they just were curious. I mean, you should probably quit as soon as you can. <laughs> quit more. Uh, yeah. So, like, if if you have the thought to quit, then quit. Uh huh. No, that's my thoughts on quitters. <laughs> <laughs> this is like greed is good. <laughs> Quitting is good. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the moment it enters your mind, if you want to quit, um, yeah, then, then quit, because probably you are convincing yourself to do something you don't want to do. Yeah. I want to be in a room with four shaper and no silver V. I, I can tell you that would be a party. <laughs> if you actually know no silver V. That would be fun. Um, Hopefully one day. Yeah, totally. The um, how, How's the audience doing? What, what are y'all thinking about? Confirm. Just chilling. Let me see where we are on our map here. We're, we, we've gotten to at least the top, you know, top bit of Italy. Uh, yeah, it looks beautiful. It does look beautiful. I have family in Italy that I... Do you know visit. where they are? Uh, yeah, I think they're in the middle. I think they're just somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. I think maybe San Benedetto del Tronto is the name of a city. Oh, Oyster had a question. Um, any notable differences between the ethos of hand-to-hand -hand conflict and that of gun combat? Um, I think you can get away with direct attacks more in hand-to-hand -hand conflict. 
you can get away, you can still win with direct attacks. And I think that becomes very unlikely with firearms. You you pretty much need to work the angles with firearms unless... No, actually, yeah, I'd stand by that completely. You, you need to work the angles in firearms. You can get away with not working the angles in hand-to-hand -hand conflict, though obviously that is going to become less and less the case professionally, I believe, um, as people are getting better and better. Getting better and better at what? Um, at fighting without getting hurt. Uh, so uh, an example of this style, I would say, in MMA is, is Ryan Hall, where he's very careful about everything he's doing, and he doesn't really engage unless he knows he's going to win that specific situation. And this was, you know, not exactly the style of, of most fighters, because most fighters are actually also entertainers, which means they're going to go at each other directly more. However... As this becomes more popular, people are also going to game things more. And part of gaming things is this, uh, you know, paying attention to the ability to actually have a fight um, and then survive that fight without getting injured at all. Um, and, and that means working the angles a lot. I actually think probably if you did karate, that's almost all what it was about. Is that correct in competition? That, that what was what it was about? Like the name of the game was like probably getting the right angle to go in to get your strike and then get out. Yeah, it was super focused on... So later on, I ended up encountering... You might have run into this website, Bullshito. Mm -hmm. So I, I encountered that after I did a whole bunch of years of karate, and I was like, holy shit, I should have been doing MMA, basically. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I did do some competition fighting in karate, um, but it was a lot of focus on being very fast and mobile and getting in and out, basically, and timing um, the, the strikes. Yeah, so that is uh, becoming more the case in MMA as well. I referenced George St. Pierre right. earlier, and he actually brought that from karate into MMA um, successfully. Yep. Back then, I always wanted to try that one bare-knuckle style. Mm -hmm. of competition in karate which i will not remember the name it's in my mind somewhere uh starts with an i maybe I, I think it was one that they i think they only did in japan um and it was like no punching in the face or something like that but otherwise it was just a, it was like a bare knuckle competition style where they seemed to hit kind of hard mm-hmm But, yeah. That does seem very exciting. I noticed that Oyster said, I meant more in the lesson take to the rest of life. And uh, to that I say no. There, uh, For that purpose, I don't see any differences. Yes. Um... I would say, just like with the angles, in a sense, it emphasizes it. You have to be, like, that much more calm. Hmm. With a, with a firearm. Yeah, do people... I guess people probably shoot badly when they're anxious as all hell. 
Yeah, so if you look at uh, most reports um, for police, and as well as, um, you know, most military reports, you put people put dozens of rounds down for every round that gets in. And the reason for that is not that they are normally bad at shooting. Um, you know, if it was a target, they would probably, like, get every round in. It's that there is a... There appears to be a barrier to harming another human being, in a way. Uh, and to overcome that barrier, usually it's overcome with fear. And because it's overcome with fear, um, you know, your adrenaline's pumping, everything's shaky. Yeah. Uh, and so your your control over your little fine motor movements are kind of out, out the window. Have you heard of this book um, on aggression? I think it's Conrad Lorenz might be the name of the guy. No, I have not. Um, um he goes through Unless... a, yeah I, I haven't read it um a friend of mine read it and was a huge fan he goes through a bunch of displays of aggression in animals um geese and wolves and different stuff um he kind of has this thesis that um the sort of like explosive rage reaction um becomes a lot more deadly in our era because we like have weapons and um that a lot of sort of violence in nature is not intended to be as deadly um i guess this connects to some of what we were talking about before um sort of seemed like something you would vibe with yeah um, i'll definitely want to check that out i like to make sure uh i guess <laughs> i like to pretty much have a uh handle on all the the theories of violence and aggression out there yeah what are the what are the, the different thinkers I, the ones that I have in my mind, I know um, Hannah Arendt wrote something called On Violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some... This is not going to be clear in my mind, so I should just let you let you answer the question of what are the, what are the different thinkers that are interesting to you, I guess. Uh, so, in addition to her, I guess the the people that most professional site or like uh, Dave Gro Grossman um, okay. or uh, Tillman with uh, who's more of like a political science professor but talks about conflict a lot um, and Dave Grossman wrote like On Killing and, and several other books on the psycho psychology of violence uh, as well as SLA Marshall who, if you look at his life in detail, you know, he's a bit of a sensationalist writer who's just trying to sell books. Mm -hmm. But, you know, keeping that in mind, as I do with everything, like the, the context of the author, um, he does have a lot of information that was then kind of used by other theoreticians after that. Um, and this is not counting all the war theory people who were generals and so on. Right. I think... At the end of the day, my favorite sources are actually first-hand accounts of um, grunts. Yeah. Um, because they will go over the same theories, but it'll... Like, if you're not paying attention, you'll not realize that they've just expanded on a, on a very involved theory of violence. But, you know, they don't say theory of violence. They just say something like, oh, when you go into a combat situation, fear is like a... Uh, like liquid in a bottle it goes up and then it gets to a point and then it has to come out or not uh-huh you know they'll 
say something like that as an aside on one page and then um but when you add those up it, it i think it usually provides um a very grounded theory of violence and then i use that to then look at whatever academics are out there um and among them randall collins who writes on the microsociology of violence about like the situational nature of violence is um i think pretty underappreciated academically but like his like that theory is pretty pretty sound in that it does line up with a lot of these ground troops um reckoning of violence and it also his data is from coding a whole bunch of youtube videos uh which is nice because then you can go through all all his data and then find the youtube video and then look at all of those for yourself oh, and, like, and see what you see like youtube videos of people getting in fights getting in fights uh riots um murders combat footage all of it wow um what types of questions should a theory of violence answer or does it depend on the purpose i mean i, I think all of these are answering different questions for different people um you know for an example the most cite some of the most cited ones like i mentioned earlier like dave grossman yeah. is asking the question is uh when when is it right to commit violence that's basically the question he's asking um and then others are like who a lot of the war ones are or the the theories by generals are like what's the most effective way to employ violence mm -hmm. um and then someone like randall collins might be asking a question of what how does like how does violence make sense in a human context um and so i think all these questions are valuable to ask because you might as well get uh, as many angles on the space as possible right um though i suppose my personal question often is um how do i make this person in front of me feel loved and th and that is one of the questions your theory of violence means to answer yes can you say more so uh i see violence as an intrinsic part of of social interaction mm. and of like the existence of life um and because it's so strongly tied to underlying fears um you know generally speaking people are afraid of of 1000 people getting killed by cops every year but they're not scared of getting into their cars um which right. i think speaks to to a specific fear um and to show people that they are loved you have to deal with this fear in some way um and so whenever i am considering a theory of violence this is a question in the back of my head because it's what like as far as i'm going to say air quotes problems go like this is a very constant real problem to me um which is this sort of uh the sphere that people have yes or like a well or stuckness or something right like why do they why do we 
feel uncomfortable. Like, why aren't we feeling like we're at home all the time? When, you know, like today, we're in the, the least violent time in history. Right. Right. That is interesting. Uh, I would say so. Um, but I actually... Leo asked, is dying in a car crash a case of violence? And I would say, for from my perspective, I would say so. However, I believe for for most intense, for most people, the, the answer is no. Because it doesn't have the same psychological effect. Yeah, I had a friend who grew up in Bangladesh and told me that um, uh, if you... I, I don't know... Well, whatever, this is what she told me. was that if you hit people in a car um often a crowd will gather and kill you um i wonder if the if that is true and i, I think it is like you know she did grow up there um if that culture receives it differently yeah um i mean that would make sense uh, so i definitely actually do take it that way like if you hit me in a car i do take it as an attack mentally hmm. um Though, you know, I'm not judging by the past. I don't, like, go out and grab the person out of the car and beat them up. Yeah. But I certainly react as if I might be about to. Hmm. Um, mentally. Yeah, it's different. It's I, I, I can't tell. I mean, I guess you got to be in the situation to really know. Because, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I was in a, I, I was in a hit and run. And this was in Oakland. And uh, the guy who hit us, it was like four in the morning. No one around, totally empty streets. I'm going in the airport. The guy who hit us, I think, was in a stolen car. He just hit us and immediately left. And I think it, they somehow figured out that the the car was abandoned, like not far away. And it felt a little bit just like I don't know, like the grinding gears of society had like doinked me. Um, <laughs> it's like the, it was it was annoying, but I, I yeah, different concepts, I guess. Might have been different if I were driving, because mm-hmm. this, this was in a in an Uber. Yeah, fate versus transgression. I will say that I'm much more scared of getting in a car, even though it's something I do every day, than I am of walking down a dark street at night. Yeah, in almost any city. Yeah. I'm pretty, I, I hate cars, dude. Like, and I get pushback on this from people. They're like, what's the big deal? I'm like, you suck at driving. I'm not getting in your car. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah. This used to stress me out a bit, uh, a lot. Uh, not a bit, like a lot that I would feel like I could sense that people did not believe that death was a possibility, mm-hmm. but, you know? Um, I think it is true. I think mostly people don't believe it is a possibility. Um, Yeah. It's like, it's a very curious thing because of like, you know, if you're not a black person, if you're not a black male in our age group, it's probably a car (laughs) that would get you. Right. Yeah. I mean, you just look at the, look at the numbers. Yeah, what what do you think drives some people to think about death a lot? And you know, like there's the whole 
what do you think about like memento mori like is that something is that a discipline that you think everyone should hold or do you think it is sometimes done in a bad way um i think if you do it there must be a bad way to do it because there's a bad way to do everything in a sense yeah uh though it's it's hard for me to find a bad way to do oh i guess if you if it resulted in inaction mm. I, I think i can probably tell you a bad way to do it that i did yeah um i part of my weird sort of origin story arguably part of my superhero origin story is i used to have very extreme mental imagery of like violence and torture and death and stuff um mm -hmm. for a few years and it was sort of just i you know i wasn't surrounded by it had a pretty you know by material uh, materially speaking pretty chill life um and uh I, I got really hardcore into this stuff because of the Hagakure. You know, they, there's this line, it's like, imagine yourself being filled with arrows and spears and swords and drowned under the ocean and covered in a mountain and burned in a fire and sort of goes through the different things. Um, and I had a very weird relationship to it. And I, uh, I think it became part of like a negative motivational cycle. Like I would be, and it got woven pretty deep, which was part of the problem. Um, sort of using the the sort of uh what do they call it like the torturers uh pliers or whatever to get myself to do stuff all the time mm -hmm. it's sort of like a, a particularly pernicious version of that like um so you're using the 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 remembrance in a way or the construction of possible deaths as a punishment to do things yeah it's kind of like a way that i cracked the whip this was like before i had heard of any concept of like self-kindness and psychological mm -hmm. anything it was just I, I would do it while i was doing physical exercise so i would exercise in very extreme ways and be imagining dark stuff but and i would be pushing through it i think i i and that's why i sort of say superhero origin story it's like i think i got some powers um i think i got a, a strong will and a tolerance for scary shit and a type of calmness um but it also just kicked my ass um in terms of also you know causing anxiety and probably some kinds of depression so I, that might just be some stupid version of memento mori it's not maybe what was intended um, I mean, it's, it's hard to say, I guess, uh, but it, it would seem like it's not what was intended by the Stoics, but I could easily see it as what was intended by the Samurais. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, you know, like you said, it gave you powers and I actually do think that that is the, like, that's the heart of the warrior spirit, so to speak. Mm. Um, it's the the ability to go through life kind of knowing that you're going to die in every second of it um which i think is only relevant if you are thinking about the future at all i'm looking at vecnan here uh <laughs> So you only need to accept death if you are taking the future seriously. <laughs> uh, 
He's off the hook. <laughs> Time's not real. He's out. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Because, like, for the, the most part, our society is constantly living in the future. Um, I think it becomes necessary to accept it. I actually suspect that for a lot of societies, especially small-scale societies, um, with a lot of rating culture and whatnot, by the time you're 15, you would have accepted it as a right. male. Right, right, right. Okay, here's a question. Um, what do you think... Uh, so, let's just talk about masculinity, I guess. Um, and what do you think of... the? There's sort of like... Uh, the modern world is very, like, messed up about it. Um, you know... Uh, I do think that there's a lot of, like, softness in men that is, like, you know, some of, some of that's not desirable. Um, I think there is some truth to, like, kind of like winter is coming um, type of thing. Uh, at the same time, a lot of, like, manosphere stuff is pretty stupid, um, I think. So what do you think of the cultures around that? Like, I, I don't see, like, sort of... How do you avoid like not being, not having a shitty attitude about it? I don't know. Sort of poorly phrased, what, what, but what would be a shitty attitude about it? Would be would it be like, oh no, men are being attacked all the time, or, or something like? That? Well, there's there's that version. There's the like men are persecuted, which is like it doesn't feel manly, basically. Um, right. That's one version. Um, I don't know. Like you you. I, to, to bring up a term that is, that is uh, politically fraught, like, what do you think of inclusivity? Um, what do you think of, like, the, the you know, social tensions around gender? You know, people talk about toxic masculinity. Do you think that's real? Any any kind of thoughts in the zone would, would interest me. So I think the moment anyone says toxic anything, it is... Um, whatever this phenomena is is pointing to something painful in themselves that they cannot yet look at. Uh, so from that point of view, for me, I would say toxic. However, for people, it clearly is, though I will say that what is to almost entirely does not seem to exist in Western educated culture anymore and has seemed to be that way. Like, it has ceased to exist for, like, at least eight Um, so there is no... The last bastion of that kind of masculinity was competitive gaming servers in the <laughs> 2000s. Okay, go on. Um, and... So, what's healthy for someone with that hormonal balance versus someone who isn't, is, is kind of different, right? Like, you know, when I was in the military, you're constantly cussing each other out mm -hmm. um, in ways that... You, if someone said that to you now in, in a college campus, maybe you'd get arrested. I don't know. Right, <laughs> right. Someone would certainly try. Um, but over there, it's actually a signal of trust. I trust you so much, that's why I'm giving you shit. Um, and I think I mentioned 
uh, in some reply to some post uh, that mentioned you recently um, about some males being given shit all the time. And I was trying to point out that that only happens when you occupy an important space um, for that community. And they're constantly testing you um, to make sure that you're still worthy to be basically the man taking care of all of them. And to have that kind of ability, it's useful to constantly go through it all the time. Um, so if you're in an all-male group and you're constantly giving each other shit, when you come out of that group and the wider world gives you shit, it's suddenly relatively trivial. And then if you go out of your group and your enemies give you shit, it's like nothing. Uh, one of the, the groups in um, BJJ and grappling is called the Danaher Death Squad. Uh, and the funny thing about them is that they would say that their teammates are more dangerous to them in the gym than any competition they have faced outside of their gym. Right. Uh, and I believe by default in society, masculine culture has to provide this environment in order to prepare, to prepare them for the things they're about to do um, later in life. Okay, so you're the um. There's is it's it's sort of like uh, what's that phrase? I fucking love that phrase. Cry in the dojo, laugh on the battlefield. Yeah. Um, yep. Uh, I guess a, a similar one is like an ounce. Um, in training, saves you an ounce of blood, in the battlefield, so on and so forth. Oh, wait, sorry. A, a what of? An ounce of sweat saves, or it's actually probably like a pound of sweat and an uh -huh. ounce of blood. Right. 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 <laughs> Um, by the way, your audio's a little, uh, overbalanced or whatever. You might have moved closer to the mic or something Is like that. Is it better now? Yeah, yeah, that's better. Just tweaking that. Um, okay, so there's so, so there's something like giving people shit, and then there's this way that that, like, does edge on bullying. Like, what's, what's bullying in this framework? Uh, so, judging by fish and, uh, boarding school boys, bullying is something someone in the middle of the status hierarchy does in order to stay in the middle. Um, so I would not expect bullying to come from elites. Mm. Um, it would, the, in this, this, in these status hierarchy d dynamics, I actually see that the, the people on the top and people on the bottom have a lot in common. Um, mm. uh, again, if you look at like groups of fish and stuff, as well, the, the same pattern holds um, as it does in, again, boarding school boys, uh, where if you are getting in the arena, so to speak, if you're getting into the competition, it's likely that you will be at the bottom sometimes and the top sometimes. But if you're trying to skate by um, in some sort of maintenance of your status, then it pays to stay in the middle, and part of staying in the middle is keeping the losers who are potentially to tomorrow's winners down right yeah th this is um i don't know how much you want to get in political theory but some of the people some like the monarchists um will respond to the idea that power so there's like the power corrupts people right mm -hmm. um and those people will say 
when they talk about dick they'll talk about dictators they'll talk about hitler and stalin and mao and they'll talk about tyrants right and then the sort of the monarchists tend to respond that well those are um strong leaders in also by the way i don't think this position has to be owned by monarchists it's just that they happen to say it um mm -hmm. they'll say that those aren't actually strong leaders those are weak leaders in a way um str strong in the sense of uh, they have a strong hold on their society, but they're in a place of threat, um, and they're, mm -hmm. they're they're fighting. It sort of seems like there's a bit of a resonance there. Like there's com or there's maybe a comfortable way to be in power. Yeah, that's less yeah. less less cruel. Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, I think we can go and look at chimpanzees and bonobos and small scale human societies and look at the, the division that some people make between prestige and dominance, so that you have leadership by dominance and leadership by prestige, hmm. and one of those is a lot more stable than the other. The, the dominant um, individuals tend to be more high stress. Uh, and so when they show weakness, they're taken down by a coalition, whereas the prestigious individuals tend to be less stressed um, and they tend to be helped even after they fall. Yeah. What? What's? What is the? Why? Why does Machiavelli say it's better to be feared than loved? That's a good one. Uh, I think that has to do with scale, hmm. right? Um, especially at that time, if you read a lot of the the generals instructions and stuff like frederick frederick the great actually a little bit after that um says something like you should probably never hate your enemy but always make sure that your troops hate your enemy huh. um and i believe that's because when you are working at large scales with um a lot of like communication trails in between that are perhaps very long uh and on the order of days or months or years that you need a much stronger, clearer message, and fear is, in a way, clearer than love. Hmm. Uh, and so that's my speculation about why that might be. Uh, this is tied, again, to the fact that it's easier to organize people, especially past, like, five or six, uh, according to no, according to what you can't do, rather right. than what you can't do. Ah, this is such an important question because it's it, this is one of those questions where it's like makes me wonder about the future of humanity because if the scale keeps going up unless you get some kind of glorious decentralization event which people talk about i sort of can't see it myself but you you may believe that that's possible i'm not sure but um but the the fear would be that um things are going to inevitably go up in scale and the way that scale works is these horrible fear and threat-based systems and bureaucracies that really suck to be in and you get this sort of long miserable corporate uh, mega mega society future um what do you think so i'll give you the story of like star wars and every other blockbuster action fantasy-ish movie which is uh the the large-scale collective that is based on fear does not believe in itself as much as a smaller collective that is based on something else 
I believe that. Well, this is interesting. I was just going to connect the Aztecs and the uh, and the Spanish, mm -hmm. but I actually think that the Spanish believed in themselves more than the Aztecs did. This may be an yeah. offensive view to some, but I think that's true. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think it would be the the what happened is clear evidence to me of that. Like the mm. way that the that the Spanish conquered the Aztecs, um, dividing them right against each other and using using them as the primary soldiers is clear sign to me that the Aztecs did not believe in themselves. And also, they they hated Montezuma, mm -hmm. right? And he's he's kind of tyrannical. Um, but are, yeah, okay. So this this is interesting. So this does come back to some of what you're saying about um, the sort of the strength of a small group that believes in itself. Yeah, Oyster mentions the Asabia. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I think we are about to hit a period in which we will see groups that have more of that than has ever been possible before. I do not know what the time scale is, but I'm betting on it with my life. What could what might that look like? Um So yeah. it basically looks like every time you have some decision in the group between something that works at scale and something that has to do with what is happening now in the present between two or more people, that what is happening in the present between two or more people is selected over the more abstract thing that it could be competing with. Uh, a simple example is if you have Alice and Bob, and Alice and Bob want to get this cow and kill it and eat it but alice feels like because they don't own the cow that it is morally wrong um but bob is convinced that alice wants this anyway and alice and bob are in a small scale collective together then they're going to kill the cow and eat it regardless of anything about the property rights of the cow so sort of like a there's like a political coordination advantage to near versus far. Yep. Might be a way to put it. What, what could that look like? I mean, how, how much have, do you have this idea sort of built out as far as like a political setup? Like, do you think that big empires are going to be broken up? Yes. So I think they are. Um, but I'm not sure... Like, I could also see them just turning into, like, so they, they still keep the same central culture and everything, but then the power just shifts over to groups like these within within the Empire. Right, okay, so it's sort of, um, that makes sense. More of, like, classical re republic type of idea. Maybe. Yeah, when I oh, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was just going to say technology freaks me out. I mean, I I I tend to be um, amenable to the view that enhancements in tech in technology um, tend to favor the center, um, and so you'll have, you know, it's like these people who believe that Bitcoin is the future and it's going to um, 
you know, mean that governments can't track transactions and all this stuff, but then you end up with like, you know, different governments just making their own coins and other ways of enforcing it. And maybe crypto ends up being on the side of the center, uh, ironically, um, things like AI, you know, maybe gets regulated, but then the U S and China still have some hardcore AI programs, um, under wraps, you know, black ops stuff or the extreme cases of like fighter jets and nuclear weapons as technological advances that end up favoring the center. Yeah, so I think that all only favors the center as long as the people that make up the organizations and countries and so on believe that it favors the center. Hmm. Because, like, ultimately, the, the country is made up of individual people. So if they are at any time tired of doing what they're doing, if they're basically tired of the centralization, then nothing the central powers can do can stop them. Because ultimately, it's it's their decision with their actions. Right. And in business context, I had a friend who used to say that at the end of the day, every decision is made by a person. Um, where it's like you'll, you'll run into some kind of system. But, you know, there, there's some human out there who can kind of override it. Um, that, is, that is interesting. I'm just checking out chats talking about influencers. The return meme. Yeah, what do you think of traditionalism? What do you think of return? Is there is there anything interesting in that um, space? I mean, I assume that whenever people are saying that, they mean return to the 1950s in the United States. Uh, and so from that point of view, it's a little funny. Uh -huh. um, you may notice, well, I don't know if you noticed, <laughs> I once uh, challenged trad humanists on Twitter to fights because... Right. <laughs> It, I think that kind of speaks for itself, like the, the, the reasoning behind that. Are you are you down to expand on it, one click deeper? Uh, yeah. So there's a identification with more traditional norms, or what they would call traditional norms, mm. to include like what it means to be masculine and feminine and so forth. And in my estimation, the people who are usually promoting trad humanism are actually quite feminine in their own terms. Uh-huh. Uh, and so that speaks to a, a contradiction about their values. So I basically am not convinced that any trad humanists believe in what they are trying to sell. Hmm. Yeah, what are, what are the signs of... What what are the things that you're calling sort of feminine? Uh, so if you need someone else to corroborate with your sense of self or like with your um, idea of who you are, I do consider that uh, a subtly feminine thing from a traditional point of view. Hmm. Like because it's it's the it's similar to actually when people insist on pronouns uh, which 
if it's coming from someone who's being trad humanist, if they want someone to work with them and agree with them about their story of themselves and they get upset when the story of themselves is not corroborated by people outside themselves then that tells me that it is feminine in the sense that I assume the Romans would have considered the Persians feminine. Yeah, how would the Ro Romans have considered the Persians feminine? So I think it's a sort of... It's uh, like communitarianism or something? And, well, also a sort of like appreciation of luxury to the point where you're less likely to try and do something for yourself and more likely to say get servants to do it for you or to need a a large um apparatus a large um system that that you keep running of servants and so forth to to do your bidding so that you can recline somewhere and eat your grapes or whatever right right yeah i guess i guess a lot of these plans that go through like first everyone agrees with my narrative um there's at least i mean we don't necessarily even have to go into sort of gender dynamics it's there's something um strange about it i don't even know how to put it i so like a locus of control thing right I, I do think it's a like a natural reaction in a way to to the previous values i would you know assume that if you looked closely at those people that they would have been like liberal feminists not too long ago um and so it's a, a sort of a natural reaction to bounce back and forth um before they find whatever they're going to find hmm. and it might be that they do find something like the trad humanism they they uphold it just you know might take a while to to live up to that image Do you, um, how apocalyptic are you? Uh, so a joke I made the other day is that I have just gone through a series of millenarian cults, uh, -huh. uh, where the end is always nigh and you're always preparing for it and it never quite comes. Uh -huh. Um, I don't actually think there will be an apocalypse anytime soon. Uh, I do think there will be something closer to a storm uh, or a famine. Um, I don't mean those things literally, but like the equivalent of what that would have done to a community, you know, the 500 or a thousand years ago. Um, I expect some major change, though. You might also say I'm hoping for it because I, I'm betting that I will do better mm. um, or that it will serve me better than it will serve many other people. Well, if you've got your squads set up, yeah, <laughs> you could do worse. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder about it. I mean, I wonder things about like how I should be spending my life, and I do find myself in some ways... Um, and I reserve the, the sort of anticipation that I might change this, but in some ways drawn more and more towards a role in, like, the narrative 
part of the world. Um, mm-hmm. And this sort of show has been an experiment in like, you know, d- defining the parameters of a space. And on the other side for me, what's juicy is like, if somebody learns something, if someone gets to know the guest better and if people get opportunities, like, you know, that's cool. But a lot of it is, um, what story do we end up telling afterwards, you know, after one of these shows or after several seasons of them about who we are as a group and sort of, um, I hope that that can contribute to some of that, that Asabia. Um, I absolutely think it is working that way. Exactly. It, and um, like I have complete faith that that's what is happening right now, that that is what you are doing. Cool. Yeah. And, and, and it is also, you know, it's, it's, it's convenient, right? I mean, like I did, uh, listen to, to Vecman's show with you. Inshallah says, says Oyster. Um, and it's sort of, producing social information um you know it's hard, hard to assess people when you just have a twitter account even though it's not that it, it's somewhat high bandwidth it's also sort of not um and it depends like how much stuff people are putting out there um but then even zooming out from that like i've been experimenting with making these sort of art videos and sort of uh, vibe energy sort of uh sort of videos about um i've got a new one I guess I shouldn't spill the beans yet. I got a new one coming out on some historical themes, and it should be pretty cool. But I do wonder if there is a storm. Um, what is the media man to do? I don't know if that that might be like a, sort of a deal for a more, a more civilized time. Um, but I don't know. Um, well, you know, shamans have been around forever. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I'll, I'll start selling supplements or something. <laughs> the so the 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 pain that I was talking about earlier when I say that the the pain sometimes isn't processed from a previous generation and whatnot the thing that does the the processing is is you're just telling a story about it sorry can you say that again so uh when i when I talk about unprocessed pain right or like where if if there is some oh I'll use the word trauma. So if there's trauma, I would call that simply pain that you haven't figured out how to learn from. And part of the way to figure out how to learn from the pain is is telling stories about it, um, right. about how it changed us. And and so I see that storytelling would be invaluable. Uh, I also think that if you recall Beowulf, mm-hmm. um, you know, in in that in those times, which are you know, argue, arguably relatively decentralized, um, dangerous times compared to like uh, Rome's peak. Mm. That they're doing a lot of storytelling. Those warriors. Yeah. And I think, I think it's for a reason. Yeah. Um. There's. You know, I might be able to grab this right here. Um. There's a. Uh, I'll put this up. But you know, I think I even put it up on Twitter once already. God, this plane is just deciding it's gonna fly in a really weird way. Um, this book I read, A Study of History by Toynbee. Um, is yeah. this, have you, have you ever taken a look at this one? Yes, I have. Oh, cool. Um, well, he, just the thing I was going to reference is that in the back, he has this, um, just legendary table of all of the, um, epic poems from different, um, periods of expansion in the different cultures it just hits like everything um and uh i don't know if i can find it right 
this yeah barbarian war bands and their epic poetry um the sanskrit epic the irish epic the teutonic epic pre-islamic arabic poetry um homer uh irish and islamic sagas um alexander romance iranian french byzantine epics and and more uh he sort of has this crazy theory that that epic poetry is well i guess it's not that crazy i think it just makes sense that epic poetry um arrives in these sort of dangerous times of expansion like the beowulf right like the iliad yeah uh, that makes total sense to me uh you know the question vecton asked earlier about sources in a way i can say that epic poetry is definitely prominent mm. um I think it's one of the most important but un underutilized sources of information about how to behave in uncertain times. And, you know, that ties in very well with with what you just said. Hell yeah. Do, are there any sort of... Is, is it the ones one might... Is it like Beowulf and the Iliad or are there others that are strong? I, I, I haven't read... Um, what's that one with Sigurd? Yeah. Uh, sagas of the... I want to say Vinlanders, but I could be wrong. Is it the Eddas or something like that? So uh, I guess the poet, like the poetic Eddas, would have multiple different mm. sagas. Mm. Um, though the one with Sigurd would be the most prominent one, possibly. Right, right, right. Oyster's there mentioning the ring cycle. Yeah. Um, Leo asked about Asabia. So my understanding of Asabia, this is. Uh, Ibn Khaldun is like a Muslim sociologist, and he described the idea of like spiritual group unity or like a sense of unified spirit uh, in a group. And um, you may be able to correct me on this. I think he, I think he believed it would disappear in decadent times and have to be reinvigorated. Um, yep. Yeah. Those. I would say that those that cycle is is the core to to his observations, uh -huh. um, which then we can see nicely kind of portrayed uh, in fiction in Dune. <laughs> ah, interesting. Right. Right. The jihad. Yeah. Uh, I would also call that. You know, I think it's called many things in many places. Um, some of the things you might recognize are like esprit, esprit de corps um, mm -hmm. from from the Napoleonic army. Um, the I believe the Commonwealth countries today called it a having a shared purpose or a shared aim, um, and they they organized their strategic doctrine from that principle. Uh, you know, today a lot of rationalists might call it alignment, hmm. and so on. Yeah, did you did you roll with the the rationalists for a while? Yeah, I would say that uh, I would call myself culturally a rat in the way that many people are culturally Jews uh -huh. uh, without going to synagogue and so forth. Right, 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 right. Um, so you spent some time around like the Eliezer's ideas and AI AI fears and. Uh, the various mental techniques that rationalists use and stuff. Yes, yeah, and if I look at my social network, excluding the ones that, or most, excluding most of the ones that I that I interact with, 
face to face. A lot of them have been or are rats. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I was. Um, so then, what what stages of transformation do you think this sort of corner of uh, I mean, it's not just Twitter, but it, you know, the, this sort of people that have gathered on Twitter and whatever it is, the post rats or the rats and the post rats or the whatever the fuck in group. Um, what, what what could that change into you? Do you do you spec? I imagine you will believe that it will transform in some way, or what do you think? Yeah, I think when it finds a sort of confidence in itself that it will be a place to speak quite brazenly that uh, the next set of elites come from. You know, you you have the Asabia, for instance, uh, the cycles of decadence and so on and then people come from the desert usually Kaltun points that out you know he calls them desert savages at least in the the translations that I've read Um, and that's where the new group with a strong alignment comes from Um, and I think in many ways this weird combination of like Buddhists and technologists and so on and so forth and rats that have come together to form this weird place um, are a sort of descendant of the early internet culture, which mm-hmm. I would call a sort of desert. And so I think what it will turn into is is, is the group that takes over, um, <laughs> which I understand is sort of an info hazard or weird to say out loud. Yeah. Don't worry. Not to... I don't. Too many people don't watch my show. It might be end up being one of those things that is that is a sort of announced out loud and no one notices, and then time passes, and we'll see. Um, yeah, I'm counting on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. What? Tell, say more about the desert. Yeah. The, the early internet's a way, weird way. To, it's a cool way to put it. There's sort of um. This sort of desolation of the the ver, the empty virtual world. That was populated. Yeah, it definitely echoes a frontier. Uh, I I really can't emphasize that enough, I think, in in how it affected the minds of the people who grew up on it or the people who adopted it early because there's all this wide-open space mentally and, and people were experimenting they were just doing whatever they they felt like every now and then i look at old websites like old geocities websites and yeah. whatnot to kind of like remind me of where i came from uh yeah <laughs> and it, it's kind of beautiful like people are kind of putting whatever they want up on these websites right some of them will list like all their friends and their dogs and whatnot uh-huh. uh, another might be like go deep into some specific uh not tying technique and it's just like all over the place um and i think if you were living back then to everyone else outside of that space you were weird in a specific way like the way you're thinking is not something you know a lot of times you would you would not use the same kind of language you would not share the same kind of thoughts you would share online for for fear of coming across as weird or, or different or something like that. And I think that speaks to coming from the desert, coming from a rural place, coming from a place 
that doesn't have that is not at the center uh, of the societal status hierarchy, um, right. and from a place that is quite unusual at that. It's fascinating. Um, a lot of this does this does kind of echo Toynbee to me, where he talks a lot about the. Uh, and now sometimes I can I mix up Toynbee and Quigley because Quigley learned from Toynbee a bunch of this. He took a few of his ideas. Um, but I think they might both talk about the sort of um, the edges of civilization as being where the new civilization is founded. So you'll have America as the outer edge of what was European society. Um, and you have uh, Rome spawning, I think he says, on the outer edge of what was Greek society. Um, and there's a few more of these. Yeah. Um, and I think Peter Turchin, who's the statistical analysis of history guy, um, echoes the same thing. Uh-huh. Totally. Um, well, we are getting close to our three-hour mark, but we have not hit it yet. Um, so I wanted to open this up for uh, any more audience thoughts or stuff you wanted a reaction from uh, from Ray about, you know, questions that you've been holding on to. Um, so hit me with those if, if you've got them. And uh, why do you not play Flight Sim on live? You were trying to come fly over to me, weren't you, Henry? I saw you get on on Flight Sim on Steam because um, it takes internet juice. It, it, it eats my, it drinks my milkshake. Um, the, uh, oh, yeah, so anyway, any questions from the audience or Ray, any thoughts from you or sort of things you want to cover, questions for me, whatever else? I can Are there, um, any articles of yours that you would recommend to a wider audience? Yeah, let me think for one second. It depends what you're into. Um, there are two coming to mind. Um, one of those is the one I mentioned already, pretty accessible. It's that um, it's on my sub stack. It's uh, history is boring because you don't want to feel it about uh, sort of how I started feeling that history was real. Um, I have one that's a little better that I... It's sort of this meditation on... Uh, Michelangelo. Um, it's called Michelangelo. Oh, I just read that. Yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah. What'd you think? Yeah. And I, I really enjoyed it. It, uh, it, I think it speaks to something very viscerally there for, for anyone trying to create anything. Um, totally. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what I was going for. I mean, it's like, I was feeling it. I'm still feeling it. Um, but it's just like the fucking majesty of these people. Holy shit. If you like really look at the stuff people have made, like the more I start, the more my interest, you start getting in like an artistic direction, the more competitive I feel with past people, which I think is a good thing. I mean, you uh -huh. want to, you got to learn from them, but also you're trying to put some points on the board and then you go back and it's like Milton and he, you know, and he sets out, um, you know, paradise lost. And he's like, that sets out that his goal is to justify the way of God to men and you're like holy shit <laughs> like what a project what am i doing um that's that's super real for me so that that's one that i i definitely like sharing because i think a lot of people do resonate with it yeah it makes makes me wonder sometimes about like the the goals that people have 
today, right? If your goal seems too large in a way, they might, um, like they may, like, I think there's a sense that you should not aim at the moon, so to speak, or aim at the, co like the cosmos in the case of Milton, mm. right? Like justifying God demand. Yeah. Like that seems, uh, I think in the culture of today, like somehow arrogant, but I actually, like, I don't think it is. I think it's like, that is what you're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with as humans is questions that large for each individual, I assume. Um, you know, even like a, even like a illiterate, like fisherman, you know, if you talk to them, th those kinds of questions will come up. Yeah, the same themes come back. Um, and it's also like, you know, I, I, uh, old friend of mine, you know, used to say kind of, well, what else are you doing with your life? You know, it's sort of, you have <laughs> these grand ideas. It's like, well, what else were you going to do? You, you spawned on earth, um, you know, do something cool. I've managed to put this plane down. In this field. Yeah, some kind of pleasant grass here. I'm trying to land on this grass. Oh, the engine's still on. That's my problem. Cool. Oh, let's put the flaps. That helps. Well, I'm glad we picked this plane. I hadn't flat flown it before. I, I like the look. It's kind of fun to fly around. Yeah, it's the closest thing I could see on the list to uh, sh a short takeoff. Um, and landing plane, which is a weird plane thing I've been thinking about recently. Uh-huh. <laughs> like the, the, the short takeoff and landing competitions that people do where they try to take off the plane is in a short, um, a runway and then it's a short, and they try to land it in as short a, a space as possible. That sounds kind of dangerous. Uh, I have no idea how dangerous it is. Uh, at least on, on YouTube, they all seem... Yeah. What do I Google? Short, what's it called? Uh, S-T-O-L. Um, okay. So, S-T-O-L competition, perhaps. Perhaps. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, um, with that, why don't we why don't we call it here? Um, thank you for coming on, Ray. This was great. I love chatting with you. Um, we had a million different topics, and that all seemed to relate, and I uh, love hearing your thoughts about this stuff. Um, so thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, chat, you guys are the best. You make it possible. We love you as well. Um, thanks for coming by and, and, and spending your, your evening with us. Um, hell yeah. Top tier show. Clap, clap, clap. So yeah, this will oh. be, you know, you're going to say, uh, I noticed there's a question from Leo. I will answer it sure. on Twitter. I guess. Yeah. Sweet. All right. Well, yeah, this will end up on YouTube. And, and then, Ray, send me over any any links or something you want me to drop in the YouTube thing. I can also add that later. And, and uh, we'll call it here. Will do. Thank you. All right. Good night, everybody. <laughs>